Welcome, everyone. Uh, we're going to start with a little bit of music. Uh, just uh, waiting to start at 12.05. So just give me a bit. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. So today it's going to be a little bit different than um, the other shows. We are going to go through the news. We're waiting for the press secretary. So I've got that on. Uh, so it'll interrupt the show um, because we'll hear it running over uh, the audio. I, I am... I, I need to tell you guys that I don't really prepare for my shows uh, because I have to actually do a, I have a day job uh, as well. Um, I wish I didn't and that this was my day job. But, um, you know, after all this um, shadow gate and people harassing my employers, I, um, I lost a lot of work. So I keep on uh, the longest contract that I have and try to do the best that I can. No, I'm not a waitress. If I was a waitress, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do what I do. Um, so today we're going to talk about a few things. We're going we're gonna to recap our news, right? We're going to look into uh, what they have to say. Um, about today, uh, we're going to talk about, uh, President Trump and his, uh, nomination. He was, he was recommended and nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. I think we should just have a different prize. That prize is out the window. Uh, we're going to talk about Tucker <laughs> and how he just, uh, uh, exploded, uh, information, uh, in regards to Zucker. And I'm also going to introduce you to a side of myself first before we start the news so you can get an idea where I'm going to take you to see that scientist side of myself that um, uh, no one's really seen. Um, so press secretary is on. I've, uh, I'm just waiting for them uh, to go live and we'll hear that. So in on that... I am going to give you a little hint of what we're going to be doing in the second hour because a lot of people want to understand the science behind the things uh, that people discuss and say are uh, phantasmical. But the, the, the world is a very crazy place. So I'm going to take you to a very old um, video of mine, actually. Uh, it was from March of um i uploaded it in march of uh let me see 2010 and um i'm just gonna give you a little bit of an intro of the things that i used to do uh to do what i have to do and we're gonna talk about someone that i obviously i've told you that i admire dr zavos's work he told me how to use scant and how um, I had been uh, privied to go to a laboratory of a guy that was a high school dropout, completely crazy. And this is because what Elon Musk is ready to put out, he's doing it wrong. And you're going to be like, who are you to tell him he's doing it wrong? And it's like, well, because this has already been done in a different way. And so I'm going to Try to make it as simple as possible. So let me see. Some videos are 
Oh, yeah, videos underrated, cell bio class. Okay, so this is me just... Um, okay, well, I thought he, I'd make, Here um, is me stones, and RNA, explaining kind of DNA and how it's coiled. <clears throat> Seeming that I find a lot of stuff online, I thought maybe I can give back. So we'll start with um, my professor's slides. And as we see here, my professor has nicely uh, put down the multiple levels of DNA packaging. Okay. So basically, what is this slide telling us? It's telling us that, first of all, DNA, let me just state, is over two meters long in length, okay? And there is no way we can fit two meters in a tiny little cell, right? Now, she's indicated over here, and let's see how this works. Mm, let's go for blue. She's indicated over here two nanometers, okay? That's just a short region of it, okay? But just remember, the whole DNA is relatively almost two meters long. Now, what happens is, I mean, we all know that DNA is a double helix and it has sticky ends, meaning, you know, if you kind of bend it and stick it together, you know, it'll bind with the others. You want to keep it as to itself as possible because there are a lot of interactions, correct? So what happens? This octameric... Thing. let's just put it this way for now as we're starting out, comes in. And it's kind of like a reel. And this is called a histone. It comes in and DNA actually wraps itself around it as we see here. So it's kind of like the hose reel. Let's picture it that way. Now it's about 195 base pairs long, what we have wrapped around here. And then, as you see here, there's this little leftover piece kind of to connect, you know, because... And I just wanted to say 195 base pairs. We're talking about DNA base pairs. You know, your adenine, your wanting, all of those, um, which are the uh, building blocks of your DNA. So we're going down to the smallest level. Uh, this... Um, this was put out to help people, but it was an important marker 10 years ago for... Well, it was supposed to be 2021, but... Things have sped up. It's filled up on that end, so it goes to the next one. And this is what they call a linker. Sorry, I'm using my mouse, so. Okay, so this is what is called a linker. Fancy name to say that it's linking one reel to another. The linker is about 27 base pairs long, okay? So this is the first level of packaging as she um had nicely stated over here. So the first level of packaging is, is seeing this beads on a string kind of thing um, where chromatin begins to form because this is not chromatin. This is the beginning of it. And she stated that the, initi the initial, I would say, um, phase of it is this beads on the string, you know, form that's about 11 nanometers long. Now, what comes in here is something called histone one. And it kind of stabilizes this mechanism. And once this mechanism is stabilized, it kind of like smushes them together. They all like come together. And what they do, the way they come together is like they come together just closer to each other. Okay. So they just come closer to each other and they just kind of connect. And this package, this level of it, is called, you know, the 30 nanometer pack, which is the level that it's ready to go. Basically, 
what happens is, is that as it comes together, it kind of loops like a little flower. Okay. And let's just picture it that way. And this little flower is what makes up our chromatin because you've got a lot of these little flowers going on around here. Okay. And this is how it's packed. Now, it does not necessarily mean that it's super tight. Okay. Because, um, it doesn't, a chromosome has to be accessed. So if it's like super, super tight, that's no good to us because then we can't read it. So it's still going to be like a flower, but proteins are going to be able to access it here, here, here to, uh, to read it and to be able to decode it. Though the most condensed section of the chromosome, as we see here, is the super coiling. That's the last step that happens. It's an additional coiling step that happens after all these, you know, after this coiling and the little flower and the histone one coming in and topoisomerases, next step is this super coiling. So we're going to say it's super coiling. Okay. And this super coiling actually causes it to be super condensed. Why is this necessary? Well, this is necessary when we're going through mitosis because if the chromatin is not if it is not super condensed, then there's access and all this stuff that's going around is going to ruin it. So it needs to be super, super tight. That's the only time we will find chromatin super, super tight, you know, because that's the time that it needs to be tight. So that way it can split during mitosis. Okay. So this is important just for you guys to understand on how information is accessed on that level. Um, the protection that it has and it has certain, I want you to envision that your genes themselves, right? They have, um, actual like access points where certain things can access certain points and that's about it. And that's done for the reason that, you know, when mitosis where we split and reproduce cells or when babies are made or when your neurons are, you know, reproducing themselves or when you're making new connections in your brains for, for thought. Uh, it's very important that this process is ironclad and that there is no um, access to um mechanisms to unravel the wrong information uh, because this is how we get genetic defects. Um, and this is how vaccines that uh, use RNA uh, play on this. So this is a very important thing that I put in there 10 years ago and left it on the internet. There's another one too, but this one is the most important one. As at that time, I was trying to find a way... Uh, to give back, but also having it there for people, you know, on, on a very basic level of explanation uh, to understand, you know, because, you know, apparently I have no education. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway. Now, here's an electron micrograph, as she shows, of these nucleosomes like beads on a string. Okay. You see these little beads, beads. This is the open one that we had, the 11 nanometer one. And this is the 30 nanometer one going round, round, like a little circle, right? Flowers, okay? So packaging into a chromosome required for cell division. We just said that. So over here, we've got tons of little, 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 little beads, hence the two meters fitting into this chromosome, yes? <laughs> so um, here's the centromere. This is where everything needs to detach, okay? That's the center of it. So as we see here, 
except for the M phase, the DNA is packed into chromatin rather than chromosomes, okay? So what is the whole reason of this supercoiling here? The whole reason for this supercoiling is to become a chromosome, okay? So this is when we split. We need the chromosome to split what? The sister chromatids, okay? Wow, I'm getting the hang of this mouse thing. Okay, so these need to split, right? So that's the whole point of this phase, having the necessary of having this extra super coil, okay? And this is where the histone comes in. Over here, over here, and over here, it's more relaxed, okay? It's more and just so you understand, it's more relaxed here because we need a little bit of access to find the right things. And then it packages itself uh, so it's ready to split. So uh, remember, I've, I've talked about this before, how when, you know, for example, skin cells, you lose a skin cell, the cells on the side of it um, interact and understand with something that's coined tensegrity, which I'm really PO'd that, um, you know, I had... <laughs> It, 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 um, uh, how can I say it can sense that something's missing and this cycle is then triggered, uh, from the neighboring cells to recreate that cell. And, uh, that's the whole, that's how we reproduce our cells everywhere. Heart cells, liver cells, brain cells, you know, skin cells, pancreatic cells, whatever cells is done in this way. More relaxed. It's packaged into chromatin because what? We need to access it. We need to know what we're reading, how we're reading it, and what we're going to do with it before we split, right? Okay, so the packaging into chromatin fits the DNA into the nucleus. Like we said, two meters got to fit into the nucleus. Protects the DNA, like we said. Wait, and I want you to, to conceive this notion. You have millions of cells, if not billions. And each of them inside every cell has two meters long of DNA information. Just, I want you to see how it's bigger on the inside. Are you grasping the concept here? It keeps it apart. We have this hose reel going around to keep it so it doesn't interact with each other and stick. Because if you take a big, long hose and you try to cram it into a little hole, it's just going to smush and bend and you know, not work properly. You know, if you keep it packed for too long. This way, if it's on the hose reel, it'll be a little bit rusty, but, you know, it'll open up just like DNA. It organizes segments of the DNA to allow transactions such as gene expression, like we said. It stretches out to allow some reading so that way you know what you need to do. And this also distinguishes between your chromatin and heterochromatin. And we'll get into that right after um, uh, in one of our, in my further videos. Now, before um, I close this off, I thought I'd record, well, show you a recording that I have, which is amazing. And I found this from a German site, but it's in English, which sums it up for us. Sorry, I can't expand it any bigger. I won't go bigger. The total length of the DNA in a human cell is approximately two meters. 
The DNA double strand that is wound into an alpha helix only fits into the cellular nucleus because it is folded in a complex manner. Structural proteins are required for this folding. Together with the DNA, they are termed chromatin. Octomers comprised of histones bind to DNA, which wraps itself around this protein core in the process, thus forming a nucleosome. Between adjacent nucleosomes, a piece of DNA, the linker DNA, remains free. A characteristic string of pearl structure is formed. The nucleosome chain is folded to form a 30 nanometer fiber. An additional structural protein, histone 1, stabilizes this fiber. Certain regions of the 30 nanometer fiber, the scaffold associated regions, couple to structural proteins, among them the topoisomerase. In this process, the 30 nanometer fiber forms loops. The filamentous DNA protein complex forms the so-called super twist, which is further twisted in an additional coiling step. With this final step, the complete condensation of chromatin has been achieved. This is the organizational state of the chromosome during nuclear division, mitosis. Okay, so that was it. Uh, and you're going to say, well, that was something that um, I don't think I understand and I don't understand why I need it. Um, now, I do have a um, eucarcrotin heterochromatin histone movie as well that I did afterwards through another mean, not just using my slide, but actually using my notes, handwritten notes. Um, so the reason that I am explaining this to you is because today uh, I will discuss with you uh, the science behind um, supercomputing and why it's important that you understand how quantum computing uh, is, um, is a real thing and uh, how it is helping and how it is um, trying to avoid the uh, inert, non-life-based quantum computing that so many people are trying to achieve. Uh, this has been achieved already, and it's, um, it has to do with energy, lots and lots of energy. And I've said this before, uh, you know, molecular upgrades, those have been done. And it's, it's, it's a weapon, really. It's a weapon that, you know, how is someone going to know they created this weapon? Or how is someone going to know that this weapon exists? Or how is someone going to know that it was successful if they don't know what to look for? They just assume that, you know, if any biological organism, either that be an animal, a human, or whatever, that they'll tell them, you know. So um, back in the day, uh, there wasn't um, an availability to certain people to have access to the science that would help them determine the alterations uh, by uh, adjusting uh, genetic sequences to have a visible or I would say phenotypic is the you know proper term to use um, 
quality to understand it. Quantum computing has two faces, biological and in an inert, uh, uh, I would say, lifeless ones and zeros. Now, the one thing about the lifeless ones and zeros is, is that someone must program it. And that person that is programming it has their perspective, their point of view, their wants, their needs. So this is why biochips are coming into focus. IBM, remember, I've been talking about IBM a lot for the past three years. Uh, they're taking it the wrong way only because the access that was um, available to those um, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s has therefore been terminated. Uh, you know, batteries ran out, basically. And so there's a, there's a lot of discussion because the world is a very crazy place. Uh, and truth is a lot stranger than fiction, uh, as to warfare. Artificial intelligence is a weapon of mass destruction. It is the ultimate way of controlling all living beings that are in essence by birth independent. So today we're going to delve into that. So I thought I'd start it off with quantum is binary when used by, uh, when crunching numbers. Uh, obviously, it is a lot more complex than simple ones and zeros, but when you go to the base of it, it's ones and zeros. Whereas we know that human beings, the mind, the psyche, the new, the on, the singularity, as they say, does not process information as such. And so any programming of biological beings, uh, well, anything, you know, you know how you determine if something is alive or not? It's pretty simple. If they metabolize, if they can metabolize on their own. So I've spoken about Craig Ventner, um, many, many times. That was my favorite, um, lab stint, uh, that I went to, uh, 2009 and 2010, and then again in 2011. Um, I completely admire him. It seems that almost every person that is incredible sucks <laughs> at school, drops out like Einstein, you know, Tesla as well, right? Um, he had crappy grades. He didn't pay for his tuition, but he was so obsessed. Um, uh, same thing with um, him. You know, he was one of the two people that decoded the human genome. And yeah, um, he would, uh, Craig uh, Ventner is someone that um, I've mentioned many, many times on my show because he will be coming up um, very soon. Well, 
his research. And the fact that Google now has uh, made his way to him is what's terrifying. And maybe this is why the White House uh, made that announcement of working with IBM and Microsoft for artificial intelligence and quantum tech when you know, what our administration should be doing is finding all these trans organic real entities and um, uh, trying to figure out how that can be put under check. So let's start with the news for the day and then delve into that. It's going to be quite an interesting show. Um, I was able to just pull a few things. I haven't, haven't watched all of the clips that I've lined up. Um, so I'll probably like skim through them except for the 60 minutes that I have watched myself. Um, cause I didn't have time. I was, I was, I was working and we're going to start with our news first. So I think we should start with, uh, president Trump being nominated for the Nobel prize and, uh, listen to what uh, Maria Bartiromo had to say. Here we go. One of the world's most honored awards, President Trump officially nominated for a 2021 Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts brokering the peace deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. The nomination put forward by a member of the Norwegian parliament. So far, four U.S. presidents have won the Nobel Peace Prize. Most recently, President Barack Obama did in 2009. President Trump was first nominated in 2018 following his Singapore summit with Kim Jong-un, but did not win it at that time. Maddie, your reaction? Oh, boy, if you thought that people were amped up by the 2016 election about Trump, having him nominated for a Nobel Prize going into his reelection, I think, is really going to make heads spin. I think it's, you know, an interesting uh, position here. The fact that Trump is being nominated not just for his role in brokering peace agreements, but also for his role in keeping the United States out of foreign affairs, notably trying to get us out of the engagements in the Middle East. It's going to be an interesting proposition, particularly when he's up against Joe Biden, who, of course, has made a career uh, out of his uh, work in foreign affairs. Taken. This speaks to something that President Trump needs to do on the campaign trail that I've talked about during his time in office and that the Wall Street Journal kind of writes somewhat about today. They have an editorial called a Trump comeback question mark. But it says that Biden wants to make the campaign a referendum on Trump and Biden is succeeding with Trump's help, that you need to focus on on policy, not personality. The media is not going to do that for you. So you need to avoid the riffing that voters have heard for the last several years. Listen, his base is firmly in support of President Trump. Trump, but he's got to worry about suburban voters. He's got to worry about college educated voters and women who have really left him in the last several years. So this is the exact focus that the campaign needs to stay on policy. Make it a choice, yeah. as the Wall Street Journal said, not between two men, but two futures. And that comes down to what that's right to policy. Okay, guys, let me just say something. So, you know, this this is really I mean, I don't I don't care that he was nominated. This is all posturing. Right. But, um, you know, I, I know all of us understand that China is a threat. Okay, we understand that. 
We completely understand that. We know that's the case, right? We know that China is a threat to our nation. But I'm going to tell you something. The biggest enemy is not China. It's located in the EU. Remember, it's the who that was throwing cover for China. It is the EU that was throwing cover for China. It was the EU that's perpetuating all of this. It is the EU, the EU, the EU, the EU. Now, I know that we are focusing on China because it's the easiest one. We see that they have been, you know, uh, pushing policies uh, within our shadow government. Uh, most of the military industrial complex abides and uses. We have given them all our technology except for the transorganic technology. Uh, do not get me wrong. I do not believe that Elon Musk is evil. He is a genius. I would love to sit down and have cigarettes with him and coffee and kind of um, hopefully... Tell him, don't do it like that. Uh, he's going to be like, who the hell are you to tell me? Just another nerd. But... um. I, I'm telling you that the EU is the center of all, okay? The center of all. And I know that we're targeting China, but we have to see where the EU Council holds its annual meetings. I've said this before, back in the day in 2018, it was called Astana. The name has changed to Nur Said, right? Uh, which is the city of light, the, the light of, you know, whatever hope. Uh, this is uh, something that um, needs to be examined by many Again, um, I will maintain the course that the president has chosen because the only way to unify people is to have a common goal or enemy. Uh, this is how all strategies go, and it is very difficult uh, for one to sell the idea um, and to convince the population, even though I think it would be very easy because Americans are a lot smarter today, a lot more woke today, and have done their homework today, um, and they would understand it. It is uh, very difficult to attack a conglomerate that has such a big influence. So uh, China is where we're targeting, and here we are um, just focusing on that. And it is really funny that the Norwegians, out of all, were the ones that recommended President Trump. I believe that we should start new awards. Uh, that award has been tainted. It is politically charged. Barack Hussein Obama got it for doing absolutely nothing. The European Union was nominated for it, and it, it, and it is the first pilot of what their idea was. Remember, if you can control the people, AI can keep, a populace in check to produce and abide by the rules you set. And remember, if it is something inert, if it is not people, and it is something that does not metabolize, but it is controlled by people, he who controls the keyboard, I guess, and the programming is the one that's really in charge. Uh, so the European Union has set that tone, and that is uh, of grave concern. And 
even though people believe, well, we're not there. We are totally there. As I've said, you know, 2020 has been Andrew Yang's wet dream to get going something that shouldn't be here until 2035. And um, it's very concerning because it has to organically grow. It has to be done correctly. And they've pushed up the timeline without any thought of this implementation to the lives and the dis- the duress and, 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 and pain that they will impose upon the people, which is terrifying. Lawyer Michael. So uh, let's go to my favorite, Tucker Carlson, <laughs> shifting gears to uh, this audio of CNN Zucker. Cohen has a new book out. It's an election year quickie that he probably hasn't even read. It attacks Donald Trump. Someone should ask him, have you read it? Quick, what's chapter three about? No one will ask him that, of course. The media naturally have swung into formation and promote it. CNN's leading the charge. Tomorrow night, Michael Cohen is on CNN for a much-hyped primetime interview. You can imagine how many tough questions he's going to get on CNN. Probably not too many. For Michael Cohen, CNN is like a second home. He's got a lot of close friends over there, including, we told you about this last week, the channel's chief bodybuilding correspondent, Chris Cuomo. We'll have much more on the friendship between Cohen and Cuomo later in the week. But Chris Cuomo is not Cohen's only ally at CNN. Cohen is also close to CNN President Jeff Zucker, the man who moonlights as a Democratic campaign operative. Cohen and Zucker once had kids at the same private school in New York. Cohen served on the board of the school with Zucker's ex-wife. Jeff Zucker and Michael Cohen have long been personal friends, at least to the extent that narcissists have the capacity for personal friendship. Their relationship tells you a lot about how things actually work in media and in politics. Case in point, on March 10th, 2016, that was the day of the final Republican primary debate, Cohen called Jeff Zucker on his cell phone. CNN was hosting the debate that night in Miami, and Cohen, who was working for Donald Trump at the time, wanted to check in about it. Zucker almost immediately started bragging about himself, as he is wont to do. After a few pro forma words about their family, Zucker launched into an extended lecture about his own importance. Here's the thing, Zucker announced to Cohen. You cannot be elected president of the United States without CNN. Fox and MSNBC are irrelevant, irrelevant in electing a general election candidate. If you want to run the country, in other words, Jeff Zucker said, you've got to sniff my throne. It's not that CNN needs the help, he explained, quote, we're killing it. We're doing great. But Donald Trump badly needs CNN. Quote, you guys have had great instincts, great guts, great understanding of everything. But you're missing the boat on how it works going forward. Oh, how it works going forward. OK, Michael Cohen replies, why don't you email Donald Trump and tell him that? And at that point, for the first time in the conversation, Jeff Zucker pauses. It turns out that Jeff Zucker doesn't like to write things down. Sneaky people never do. So here's what he says next. I'm very conscious of not putting too much in email as you're a lawyer, as you understand. And, you know, and as fond as I am of the boss, he also has a tendency, like, you know, if I call him or I email him, he then is capable of going out in his next rally and saying that we just talked. And I can't have that, if you know what I'm saying. People would know I talked to Trump, and I can't have that, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, we know what you're saying, Jeff Zucker. You're saying that secretly, when you think no one is watching, you are more than happy to play all sides. You can brag about how powerful you are, the big-time network honcho kingmaker, the man who decides who's president. 
like all tiny, insecure people, you will mix flattery with your swagger along the way. You refer to Donald Trump as the boss, even when he's not on the call. Okay, let me just say something. So what Zucker said is um, an attitude I had, too. Uh, The same attitude. That's the power that I was talking about. Uh, The fact that you know that you can um, alter big events. I mean, that makes you really cocky. And, um, you know, I completely understand why he came out with that. And now you can see it because Shadowgate gave you the blueprint. The military industrial complex, for some reason, people think it's just like Raytheon. And it's not. Okay. This is, this is lower level stuff that you're watching right now. These are the minions. But Zucker is telling you exactly uh what it is he's in charge he's got the backing of the people that manipulate nations that redraw borders that dictate borders okay uh, you know the, the, this is this is the war on the globe right the, the 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 whole planet the whole you know biodome right this is what the military industrial complex does. And it's so, it's not complex. It's pretty simple though. The way things have been embedded in our society and the way our education from age zero to a hundred has infiltrated our ability to see clarity. This is why I say, you know, I watch things from the moon and it's so simple. You just see the key players. Um, and, uh, it makes sense a hundred percent. And what Zucker is telling you is something that I've been trying to explain that, you know, his attitude guys, I used to have that attitude. It wasn't until that boat off the coast of Turkey and me being like, Oh, wait a minute, this isn't right. And something just sparked in my mind, you know, like, how you make those connections and suddenly it's like those movies, you know, in those movies where someone's dying and um, suddenly they see their whole life flash in front of them or, you know, how you um, suddenly see something and it's like all these connections just like that just come into focus. Uh, this is exactly it. This is this is the key for, for me. That was the time I'm hoping that at some point it does the same for you. How he spoke of himself is how many private contractors speak of themselves. You know, you've seen it when, when Bergie even talks about it, when, what he did and how he did it. And, and, and this is how your mind just fires off and says, Oh, this makes sense. And, because we have been put in a box and targeted with so much little information, how do you make those synapses and put all that information together to give you the full picture? It's like you only have the middle pieces of the puzzle, but you know the corners are right there staring at you in the face. So the cockiness of Matto, uh, you know MSNBC, all these reporters, you know uh, your uh, b- big box stores, your uh, big consumer industries—they're all like Zucker. They run the world. Uh, 
Oh, you can't wear American flags, but we're all for Black Lives Matter. But the thing is, uh, it's it's important that people understand how all of this moves and how you have the corner pieces. You're just not seeing that they're corner pieces of the puzzle. Um, and there's so many facets. There's the direct attack on 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 you as a person, on you as an entity, on you as a commodity, and then the the more macro scale, which is your community, your city, your state, your nation, and then all the nations. It, it is, you know, you have to take, you got to be watching things from the moon to be able to see the hot spots and understand. And clarity comes when the right thing clicks and you understand just how everything is put together. So Michael Cohen's discussion with Zucker was clear. Zucker knows he's in control. He was in control at that time. Now that power has been distributed to all mainstream media, all of it, uh, you know, from OAN to CNN, MSNBC, Fox, The Blaze, all of them have been uh, distributed uh, this uh, empowerment. And, um, you know, sometimes you have to use your enemies and you have to use uh, 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 these um, empowered uh, phalanxes to be able to grasp the narrative and expose it. It's unfortunate that people have to see it with their own eyes to understand it, but listen to this next portion so you understand just how cocky they are, which means they know that they've got this in the bag because, as I've said, these are titans fighting over each and every one of your minds. It's not just your body. It's your mind. Your body is a vessel. They need to control how you think, eat, breathe, speak, walk, interact. That's the point. You're happy to do that. What you don't want is anyone in your tiny, self-righteous, left-wing, rich person world to know that you're doing it. What would Don Lamont think if he knew you were talking to Orange Satan? Brooke Baldwin might storm off the set. The world would conclude that you're a dishonest phony and for good reasons. You've got to keep it all hidden. Sorry. You know what I'm saying. But Zucker assured Michael Cohen that none of this was personal. Quote, it's not that I don't want to talk to Trump every day. I've just got to be careful because because I've got to be careful. I just don't want him talking about it on the campaign trail. But you know what? I'm going to give him a call right now, and I'm going to wish him luck in the debate tonight. And then Zucker added this. I have all these proposals for him. Like, I, I want to do a weekly, you know, I, I want to do a weekly show with him and all this stuff. When is he back in New York tomorrow? Do you know? Wait, what? A weekly show on CNN? Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN, wanted to give a weekly show to a man he himself has denounced as a racist? Yep, that was the plan. Trump, of course, never did get the show. Anderson Cooper is still there. But Jeff Zucker did take the time to dispense quite a bit of unsolicited political advice to Michael Cohen. Quote, I think the other guys are going to gang up on him tremendously tonight, Zucker said about the debate that night. And I think he's going to hold his own, as he does every time. He's never lost a debate. And do you know what? He's good at this. He's going to do great. Cohen didn't seem convinced by this. Cohen was worried about attacks from the other Republicans on the stage. 
But Zucker reassured him that Trump would prevail. And then Jeff Zucker offered this surprisingly detailed political advice. Listen. How many times do you think Cruz is going to call him a con man tonight? No, uh, Ruth. I mean, uh, Rubio. Rubio. I mean, Rubio. Rubio. How many times do you think he's a lot? <laughs> a lot. I, I say a hundred. So, so, so you know what? You know what you should do is who's ever around him today should just be calling him a con man all day so that he's get so he's used to it so that when he hears it from from Rubio it doesn't matter. Hmm. Hey con man. You know, hey con man. It, hey con man. Exactly. Hey con man. Hey con man. Yeah, great. You want to get, so, yeah, get so like you know? Yeah, you want to get so smacked like, in the head? They think that he, he thinks that's his name. You know. Hey, con man. Hey, con man. Hey, con man, says the con man. There it is. That's how it really works. Inside tips on how to navigate the CNN debate from the head of CNN. Jeff Zucker, a man who was supposedly a journalist, secretly working as a political consultant. The guy who runs the Democratic Party's most faithful news network, giving political advice to the Republican frontrunner. Donald Trump's chief tormentor colluding secretly with Donald Trump's lawyer. It's all bewildering, but that's what it's really like. That's the real Jeff Zucker, a man who believes in nothing, a man whose only goal is proximity to power no matter who wields it. No wonder he's friends with Michael Cohen. But we'll have more tomorrow, including tape that will explain how do those CNN interviews come about? Some of them seem coached. All right. So um, Tucker did a great job on that. Um, And someone said, what about the news McChrystal group being used in DNC counter Trump darkness to light? Listen, that's not news, Thomas. Uh, That's something that we've been talking about. And if you watch Shadowgate, we have McChrystal in there. He's low hanging fruit because he was publicly caught working with a company that is connected to John Kerry. So this is why they're hammering that. Look over here and don't look over there. Uh, that's the key here. So again, uh, everything you see is little bits and little bits. But the key from this is, uh, you know, um, they will always throw the easiest thing under the bus. McChrystal isn't like for many reasons because of his attitude, because of the way uh, he was and the fact that he's visible about it, not hiding it because he's not he's rolling with the same people on that Shadowgate film. You have to look at it. He rolls with all we put him in there. He rolls with them. They all subcontract to each other, all of them. So. What you have to see is, is that now everyone after Shadowgate, which has been banned globally, globally, has been, you know, translated in many languages. People are now starting to see, they're starting to see exactly what's happening. This is only one. Shadowgate 2 will blow things out of the water completely. Like, that's it. So who's at the top? Well, Uh, We showed you, look at the graphic in the movie, and it's going to be the same person at the top for the other camp. There's tons of camps. We're just showing you the big camps and the one that affect us because the Jones group, Dynology and all those things also have their version of the MIC in Saudi Arabia, in Turkey, in Europe, in Afghanistan, in Turkmenistan, in China, in Korea. They all have different shell companies that they go under so we were just showing you what involves our nation 
Okay. Our nation. That is all. Our nation. So this is absolutely atrocious. I said, visualize yourself like those, you know, pictures from We Are the World where there's like little people standing on the planet with trees. That's you. And on top of you are these titans fighting. And every now and then people get hit by a stray bullet. And the battle is who's going to be holding the marionette strings to put you in that box. Now, McRaven was just a placeholder for those that fall behind, but he spearheaded things. You see how they're like, oh, former generals wrote this. Oh, former officers. No, duh. Why isn't anybody talking about how the former Joint Chiefs of Staff penned the New York Times op-ed and submitted it? McRaven submitted it. Why is nobody talking about that? Oh, because it's not time yet? See, it's all about the money. All you have to see is how many of them are getting paid by these shell companies. How many are contracting? How many got promotions or jobs within, you know, different media organizations? How many of them got check marks? How many of them did this? How many of them did that? All you have to look at is who yields that power. That's all. That's all. So uh, shifting just for uh, the, um, well, I think we should go into um, the whole uh, pulling out the troops type uh, report because we're going to see a lot of people pissed off. See, this is thanks to Shadowgate. Now we have less contracts going. <laughs> Wait till you see how pissed they are. And you're going to be like, oh, it's the missile makers, the tank makers. No, man. Do you know how much money they make when we go to war aside from the tanks and the troops because it's all contractors? Do you have any idea the billions of dollars they make on other things or how they go in there? The poppy fields? Damn, pharmaceutical companies made bank. You know, we're not just talking about that, though. OK, we're not just talking about the poppy fields. We're talking about the psyops, the purchasing of property land, uh, you know, the manipulation, the consumer infiltration, uh, you know, they don't just go in there for war. Um, it's so much bigger than that. That's just what you see. So take a listen to this. Former Trump NSC official and author of The Stakes. Michael, um, got a lot of news on this, uh, and we'll get to that in a moment, but have you ever heard Donald Trump utter one disparaging comment about our troops or our fallen heroes. No. And I was with him for the first 14 months of the administration on every foreign trip. Well, I had lots of interaction with the military uh, to mil military bases overseas in the United States. Uh, I never heard him say anything like that. One thing I did hear him say, which you just mentioned in your opening, I did hear him ask really pointed questions to generals and to senior officials that they had trouble answering. Um, you know, on, on more than one occasion, they were taken aback. I think they had gotten used to getting rubber stamped. They had uh, they were so unused to answering these kinds of questions that they would get flustered and couldn't think of anything. And one point, rather humorously, the president said which I think they thought they were going into a meeting where they would just stick something in front of him and he would sign it and that would be that. And he said, all right, I, you know, and he kept them very long and he asked them lots and lots of questions. And he said, okay, the next time I see you, you're going to have answers to all of these, right? Because you don't have them now and I'm not going to do anything until I hear more from you. And 
there was a, <laughs> let's just say the mood around the table was somewhat sullen as the meeting broke up and they streamed out. And Michael, I want to get your reaction to this breaking news tonight. A senior defense official telling Fox News that the Pentagon, uh, the president and Pentagon will announce tomorrow that they're cutting U.S. troop levels in Iraq by a third from 5,200 to about 3,500 troops. Now, this announcement was apparently planned before the Atlantic article dropped. And it's, it's keeping with his promise to bring our troops home. But could yeah, this um, have been an impetus, at least for pushing this Atlantic hit piece out with zero on the record sources? It, I, it could be, I'm sure. But I think the meta reason for the Atlantic hit piece is much more political. It's to um, see what they can do to drive down the president's popularity with the military uh, having to do with the election. I think I hate to say it. It also has to do with a lot of this kind of crazy coup talk that the Democrats have been engaging in over the course of the year, including Joe Biden saying, you know, the military won't let him stay past January 20th. The military will be on my side. Uh, There's been a lot of this kind of nutty talk that really terribly tears at the military. Uh Uh-oh. So he's now discrediting and mocking uh, something very dangerous. This is how you see how they hijack Jedi mind you. Um, Just for the record, I do have the White House feed open. So when Haley comes on, we'll hear her and we'll swap to it. Military civilian relations in this country, which is one of the bedrocks of our government, and, uh, I, I, you know, here, the, the cynic in me is thinking it had uh, more to do with that. But, it, you know, you could be right, though, since a, a move like this, any kind of troop production is in the week, is in the works for months. It takes a long time to get these policies readied and signed off. And in the meantime, as it's getting ready, lots and lots of people see it. So there are a lot of opportunities for leaking and talking out of school as these things uh, work their way through the process. Now, Mike, you've just written a book called The Stakes, and it really just the title captures really how so many of us feel about this election, that it's all on the line, not just the presidency, but the country is on the line. Explain. Well, look, fundamentally right now, I think the two big issues of this election, I mean, every election has a lot of issues. The two biggest ones are uh, woke mobs sacking, burning, looting and destroying American cities and the covid lockdown that's punishing our economy. And it's very clear where Biden is. He's for the mobs and he's for the lockdown. And it may, it may sound harsh to say that he's for the mobs, but he can only go out there and condemn violence very blandly. He can't call out core Democratic supporters, Antifa and BLM and anybody. And he can't even criticize these incredibly feckless mayors that won't enforce the law in their cities or governors that won't enforce the law, but in some cases take to Twitter or take to the airwaves and egg them on. Uh, Biden has also said a couple times that, you know, if he gets in, in there as president and the experts, whoever they are, say to him, well, we need more lockdown. He says, I'll shut the country down. Donald Trump is um, definitely on the other side of both of those two issues. He, he's made that plain all along. He definitely made it plain uh, at the, the rally that mm-hmm. some parts of which I saw in North Carolina. But then there are his core issues that he ran on in 2016, where they are diametric opposites, Biden and Trump. Trump wants more immigration restriction. He wants a wall. He wants to clean up the dumbest aspects of our immigration policy and reform the system so that we're uh, uh, putting American workers first. He wants to redress our trade imbalances, get tougher with China. Biden's been in the pocket 
of China for a long time. Uh, his record oh, yeah. within the Obama administration as being some kind of China facilitator. And then finally, war, which you've already talked about. They couldn't be more different there. Yeah, I mean, so we're going to stop that right there. I just wanted to say you saw how he minimized the threat of these generals, of these admirals, of these soldiers saying all these things, right? This is a very big deal because he's minimizing it to make it like, oh, it's no big deal. And I'm pretty sure that there's people around our president telling him the same thing. This is how they screw with your mind and your thoughts. That is is what it is. So it's pretty incredible, right? That, um, that, you know, you can see it now. Can you see it? You remember when that ship had parked in Guam and there was defiance and letters that was active duty. That was active duty, not retired. And, you know, I told you that the UCMJ 88 applies to non-active duty and, you know, nobody listens. It has to be somebody else that says it because they're more credible because the law is the law and you can read it. It's just never been applied because everyone's tweeting out everything I've been saying <laughs> because some other dude said it. Uh, this goes to tell you that that is a subtle cue of don't listen to Tori listen to us even though we're thumping some of the things she's telling you here we are kind of like i knew it was coming hello everyone today president trump was nominated for the nobel peace prize in recognition of his work in brokering an israel united arab emirates peace deal it was a historic deal and the first such deal in over two decades this is a hard-earned and well-deserved honor for this president. President Trump's foreign policy will always be one of peace through strength. And that is what the American people are seeing abroad. Career politicians merely talk about the kind of results this president has achieved on the world stage. End endless wars, we hear that often. Not too often do we see it actually done. Today, uh, the president and the Pentagon, the Department of Defense are announcing a drawdown of troops in Iraq just announced from 5,200 to 3,000. We are getting our allies to pay their fair share. Now nine NATO countries are meeting their 2% spending obligations. We've secured better trade deals for the American worker. President Trump negotiated the USMCA, the US-South Korea deal, ended the Trans-Pacific Partnership, brought back manufacturing jobs. President Trump has stood up to China, the phase one China deal, uh, also, tariffs to hold China accountable and actions to block Huawei. President Trump's also defeated terrorists. The ISIS caliphate is destroyed. Al-Baghdadi is no longer on the battlefield, along with Iranian General Soleimani. In addition to these priorities, President Trump has made peace a cornerstone of his recent foreign policy efforts. The peace deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates led to the first flight from Israel over Saudi Arabia's airspace to the United Arab Emirates. The signing ceremony for this historic deal will be September 15th at the White House. President Trump has also brokered economic normalization between Serbia and Kosovo, a major breakthrough in this decades-old conflict. It's a fact. President Trump has broken the 39-year-old streak of American presidents either starting a war or bringing the United States into an international armed conflict as a great Washington Examiner piece headline read. 
These wins are possible because of the president's leadership and outsider perspective. President Trump addresses old challenges with new solutions and delivers results for the American people. And with that, I'll take questions. Paula. Haley, thank you. I'd like to ask you about the Woodward interviews. Did President Trump intentionally mislead the American people about the threat of COVID, a pandemic that has now cost the lives of nearly 200,000 Americans? Absolutely not. Um, this president, at a time when you're facing insurmountable challenges, it's important to express confidence. It's important to express calm. Always play it down. It's playing it down. Is that is that expressing calm? It well, seems dishonest. It seems can like you read lie. the rest of the quote? That's how much they put in there. Oh, you excluded the last part. Um, Don't play the full thing on 60 please, Minutes. Please do, do you deny please do you explain. The please, of course I deny of that. Pandemic. And he makes clear that he doesn't want to see chaos, by the way, is the second part of the quote, which you failed to read. Um, the president, just days after having this discussion um, with Bob Woodward, said this from this podium on March 30th. He said... I do want them to stay calm. We are doing a great job. If you look at the individual statements, they're all true. Stay calm. Um, it will go away, but it's important to stay calm. So this president does what leaders do, good leaders. It's stay calm and resolute at a time when you face an insurmountable challenge. That's what this president has It will not appear that the president lied to the American public about the threat posed by COVID. The president has never lied to the American public on COVID. The president's been very, the president was expressing calm and his actions reflect that. Uh, on January 6th, uh, the CDC issued a Wuhan travel notice before any confirmed U.S. cases, among another a number of other actions. And I'd refer you to Dr. Fauci, who said that this president has an impressive response. I can't imagine under any circumstance that anyone could be doing anything more. That is the record of this president. John. Kelly, but how, do you, how do you square the, the president's words to Woodward when he said uh, this is a very delicate one? It's also more deadly than even your strenuous flu. This is deadly stuff. And then just two weeks after he told Woodward that, he said, this is a flu. This is like a flu. Um, and, of course, he also said it was going to quickly go to zero. But that, that, that seems to be in direct contradiction to what he told Woodward. Well, the president was listening to his medical experts because you also have at the same time period Dr. Fauci, who said this, um, asking, asked if the seasonal flu was a bigger concern. He said this on February 17th. So right now at the same time, people are worrying about going to a Chinese restaurant. The threat is that we have in this country. We're having a pretty bad influenza season, particularly dangerous for our children. So he was reflecting that point. And again, days later in a briefing, he said, the statements I made are this, I want to keep the country calm. That is what leaders do. And that's what President Trump but, does. But that statement, he's not comparing the two. He's not saying coronavirus is, is like a he was at, It was a COVID interview and he was asked about seasonal flu vis-a-vis -vis COVID, saying exactly what the president said. And in fact, the president was taking it more seriously because on the tape, he noted uh, that flu could be worse and he was taking action to address it. Um, once again, context matters that zero reported COVID cases. The CDC was implementing public health screenings. House Dems were preparing to file their first briefs and impeachment. One reported case, CDC, um, when there was one reported case, the CDC was activating an emergency operations center while Pelosi was releasing a statement criticizing McConnell over impeachment. On January 31st, the president issued a travel ban um, on China, one that the former vice president called xenophobic. That's what Democrats were doing while this president was acting, and his actions reflect the seriousness with which he took COVID-19. Yes, Jeff. You quoted Dr. Fauci. Dr. Fauci is also apparently on the record saying of President Trump that his attention span is like a minus number and his sole purpose is to get reelected. That's according to a veteran journalist, Bob Woodward. 
I think the bottom line here is that the president, by his own admission in private, on the record, acknowledged the depth of this crisis and yet told the American people something very different. How is that, at its core, not an abject betrayal of the public trust? The president has always been clear-eyed with the American people. He was always clear-eyed about the lives we could lose. Uh, again, from this podium, he acknowledged that this was serious back in March, that 100,000, 200,000 lives could be lost. Um, and with regard to Dr. Fauci, you're referring to a quote he allegedly told Bob Woodward, and I can give you quotes that we can all play on loop and video of him, saying that this response was impressive and he can't imagine anyone under any circumstance doing anything better. Uh, Dr. Fauci saying this, I can just tell you the president, uh, the first and only time I went and said, you need to do mitigation strongly, the response was yes, we will do it. The second time I went with Dr. Burks to the president and said 15 days to slow the spread are not enough, we need to go to 30 days. Obviously there were a lot of people who had problems with that because of potential secondary effects. Nonetheless, the president went with the health recommendations. So there's a long litany of praise from Dr. Fauci and you're referencing something allegedly told Bob Woodward. It's, it's on tape. It's on tape, Kaylee. Well, I'm, reading, I'm reading to you what Dr. Fauci has said very publicly for all to see, and we can all play those video clips. I can get them in your inbox. Yes. President Trump on February 7th said it's deadly stuff about coronavirus. In private, on the record. In public, though, February 28th, he says, one day, it's like a miracle, it will disappear. Well, it's, it's, one, it's one thing to, as a, as a public figure, not to try to incite panic. It's a very different thing, respectfully, uh, to lie and mislead the American people uh, about no a, was, about a crisis no one, that has claimed nearly two hundred thousand Americans. No lives. one is lying to the American people. One day, COVID will go away. I think we can all hope for that day. Uh, we will have a vaccine because of this president tearing through bureaucracy to get a safe and effective vaccine. One day it will go away. That is a fact. It is not inciting fear. This president has expressed calmness from this podium, mobilized the greatest mobilization of the private sector since World War II, uh, got more tests than any country in the world on COVID, a vaccine, which by the way, it'll be a record for a novel pathogen. The timing of this vaccine, should we get it by the end of the year or should we get it even three years, which was the timing of Ebola. This president has done an unprecedented job dealing with COVID, um, one that Dr. Fauci even acknowledged. And like I said, I will get you that clip to your inbox. Yes. You mentioned a few minutes ago that this is an insurmountable problem. I think that that's a, quite a point of dispute. If you look around the world, the United States leads the world in, in confirmed cases, in, in deaths from COVID-19. Doesn't the president have their responsibility for that record as well as the testing and, and the vaccine development you're just talking about? No, when you've looked at the rest of the world, um, in particular, the case fatality rate in the United States is about 3%. Uh, the world is 3.3%. The UK, 11 0.9%, France, 8.8%, Belgium, 11.2%. And um, you can go through the various Western world countries that have dealt with COVID. And we've done a very good job. The case fatality rate notes that. And that's a testament to our therapeutics that the president has navigated. The, US is still, it's still, it's the case now. fatality rate is the metric that shows how well our response has done with therapeutics. And we are leading the world um, in having the lowest case fatality rate. It's a very important metric and one that's a testament once again to a president who ripped through barriers, getting us from desivere convalescent plasma and other very good working therapeutics. You mentioned the president is very focused on, on the response there. Then why did the president have thousands of people, many not wearing masks at a, at a rally last night in, you know, in a state that has limited outdoor gatherings to 50 people? Why is he going to Nevada this, this weekend to hold similar outdoor rallies? Uh, the gathering of large numbers of people in violation of his administration's own guidance and of the best advice and guidance of local officials who he has said 
should have the final say in these matters. People have a First Amendment right, if they so choose, to show up and express their political opinion in the form of a peaceful protest, which is what um, the president held. And there's a real double standard here. CNN had on a guest, uh, apparently a doctor, uh, Rob Davidson, who said, now true, there are social distancing issues with regard to the protests we've seen around the country. However, this is a public health crisis. They are marching against systemic racism. So if you're allowed to march in aggregate um, in those protests, you're also allowed to show up at a political rally. You have a First Amendment right in this country. Mario. Um, how can the president bear no responsibility for the 200, almost 200,000 lives lost when he downplayed the virus initially and he knew that it, how contagious and deadly it was? I don't understand how that can. The president never downplayed the virus. Once again, the president expressed calm. Uh, the president was serious about this when Democrats were pursuing their sham impeachment. Uh, he was expressing calm and he was taking early action and his actions are reflective of how seriously he took the, the, the tact that he took, the language that he used. No, you he, said that he used hopeful language. Does, does he regret that given where we are now? No, this president embodied the American spirit that when we face a challenge, a crisis, a pandemic, uh, we come together, we can be optimistic, we can be serious about it, we can take it seriously with our actions, which is exactly what this president does. It's why we lead the world in testing, uh, doing far more than the number two, which is India. He took this seriously, but he still expressed calm. Uh, our food supply chains were at risk that we could not have mass runs on grocery stores. Uh, the markets um, also, the economy was in play here. Um, we didn't want to, there to be a huge crash and panic. He expressed calmness from this podium, but he has always taken it seriously. And the response, an unprecedented response really reflects that. Yes. Thanks, Kaylee. Um, I wanted to ask you about the AstraZeneca trial. So does that throw a spanner in the works that they've halted those trials in terms of getting a vaccine quickly? And, uh, and then I have a follow up. Yeah. So the AstraZeneca um, paused their trials. Um, phase three clinical trial um, was a routine response when they when you see an adverse um, effect. And it was one that shows that the science is guiding the way here. Um, and when there was an adverse response that was identified in one individual, AstraZeneca chose to, pop, to pause that phase three clinical trial. There are still two American vaccines in phase three clinical trials showing great promise. Um, but, you know, AstraZeneca, what is happening there is showing that the science is guiding the way on a vaccine, which is what Dr. Fauci, um, others like Alex Azar and the president have said all long. Are you still confident that you'll see a vaccine sort of before the end of the year? By the end of the year is the goal, yes. So because there was some discussion about seeing something around the time of the election, so do you think it delays that? Our timing is not about the election. It is about saving lives. And by the end of the year has always been our goal. But of course, um, a safe and effective vaccine, we will take it as quickly as we can get it. So uh, the Customs and Border Protection was supposed to be announcing or said that they would announce a ban on, on imports of many products from Xinjiang province in China uh, as a result of the human rights abuses there against the Uyghurs. That announcement hasn't come formally. It was supposed to be announced here at the White House. Are you intending to make that announcement or has there been some backlash against just the breadth of it? It, it, does, it does encompass quite a lot of different products, including tomato products that, you know, yeah, I, I have no upcoming announcements about how we'll publicly um, talk about that discussion. But if I get more information, I'll let you know. Yes. Can I just about Nevada, please? Sure. It's my understanding that the two rallies this weekend in Nevada have been canceled because of Governor Sisolak's order preventing events of 50 people or more. 
Does the president have a reaction? And what is the White House policy about complying with the state's orders limiting the size of an event? I have not heard that about the rallies, but I'd refer you to the campaign uh, for further information on that. But um, as I discussed um, with Zeke here, that we believe that if people want to show up um, and express their political views, that's their choice to do so. We hand out masks. We encourage um, individuals to wear those masks. A lot of people did. I was in North Carolina last night and saw it. Uh, We give out hand sanitizer, but at the end of the day, if you want to join a peaceful protest, you can do so. Um, And there's um, there's no reason, just like the protests we've seen in the streets, you can't show up and express your political view at a rally. Yes. Haley, um, can you give us some understanding about why the president agreed to sit down with Bob Woodward for 18 interviews when his first book about the administration was so deeply critical? Because he's the most transparent president in history. When um, when do you expect that we'll get the list, the short list of who the president is considering for the SCOTUS picks? And what's the criteria that he's using to assemble that list? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you'll get that list in short order. Um, the president is very excited uh, to share who he would nominate uh, to the Supreme Court. And what will guide um, his choices are people who follow the Constitution. He wants Constitution abiding judges. He wants textualists um, who believe the words of the statue actually are what they are, not subject to interpretation. He wants judges guided by the Constitution, Um, judges um, in the ilk um, of the two that he's nominated, like Justice Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Yes. Thanks, Kelly. Um, Did the president or anyone at the White House have conversations with the Department of Justice about their decision to intervene in the Eugene Carroll lawsuit? And if so, what were the nature of those conversations? I'm not aware um, of any discussions that have been had. Um, the president has claimed he signed the most favored nations executive order on prescription drugs. He mentioned this again last night. Um, we haven't seen the text. Has he actually signed the EO? And if so, when will we see the text? And can you tell us what the status of negotiations are with Pharma? Yeah, so the um, the EO, I believe he's referring to there, is the previous one he's signed. Um, a provision of that was most favored nation, uh, which means that for Medicare programs, you have two ways to get prescriptions, Part D or Part B. Part B are drugs you would receive at the doctor's office. Uh, And the executive order tells the secretary to peg prices for Part B to a most favored nation price to make sure that American citizens are getting uh, their medications at a price equally um, as cheap as other countries. So that was the initial EO I believe he was referring to, but any updates, um, I'll let you know in the upcoming days. Yes. Just just following up on the uh, coronavirus issues, How is it not misleading for his advisors to tell him and compare this uh, virus potential to the Spanish flu of 1918, but then for the president to say that this could disappear by April? The president, um, again, was expressing calm. The president um, was hopeful that, you know, COVID um, would, uh, that that we would be able to manage this and handle it in a way that we can make it go away as quickly as possible. And the president rose to the occasion um, and did just that. This was a lot more, by the way, it's worth mentioning um, the misleading that the WHO and China did on this. Um, When you had the WHO, they were repeating China's claim that the virus does not transmit. This was a novel virus no one had seen. And you have the World Health Organization saying this virus does not transmit readily. That is the information uh, we were getting. You had the white- O'Brien said that this virus could be the biggest threat to his presidency. Uh, Matt Pottinger agreed with that assessment. 
And then President Trump would later say that no one could have predicted this when his own experts were predicting this. Look, you're referring uh, to the intel community and they've what the president knew was, and I've walked you through this before, on January 23rd, the intel community briefed President Trump for the first time about COVID. And the briefing said, uh, coronavirus from China is poised to spread globally. But the good news is that it is not deadly for most people. This is the information President Trump was getting. And the next time he was briefed on it was January 28th, when he was told that the spread was happening outside of China and the deaths remained all inside China. He was told then that China is not sharing key data. Indeed, China was not, because as I noted to you, on January 9th, uh, the World Health Organization said it does not readily transmit between people. And on January 14th, the World Health Organization said no clear evidence of human to human transmission. Clearly, that was not true. Um, even on February 29th, as the virus was spreading, the WHO uh, put political correctness first by opposing travel restrictions. Note that on January 31st, President Trump put into place those travel restrictions that Democrats called xenophobic. Shame on them. Yes. On the same day the president tweeted that the virus would become weaker when the weather started getting warmer, he told Bob Woodward it was going to be deadly stuff. So why does Bob Woodward get the president's unvarnished opinion when the American people don't? He was giving Bob Woodward the same opinion he gave from the podium. And he said... I am here. I want to express calm. That is what a leader does. He has always shared the facts. He has always been forthright. And he's always followed the advice of his medical experts, like Dr. Fauci, who called his response impressive. Yes. He never said this was deadly stuff. Yes. The American people. Yes, he did. He acknowledged that hundreds of thousands could die. And he took the right response, which was to temporarily shut down the country, saved millions of lives. And so, too, have his therapeutics. So, too, will the vaccine that's being developed. Yes. Uh, the protests in Belarus continue, as well as the crackdown on the opposition. What concrete steps the president is going to take to support uh, Belarusians in their struggle for democracy and to stop uh, human rights abuses? Yeah, it's a, another very good question. Um, the U.S. is extremely concerned by continued human rights violations in the wake of Belarus's election. Um, reports of op- opposition figures being kidnapped, forcibly expelled, or otherwise threatened are just a few of the many method- methods that the Belarusian government is using in its attempts to deny freedom of speech. The U.S. is working with our international partners to hold all of those committing these abuses accountable. And we call on the Belarusian government to release all who are being unjustly detained as for the election. The election there was not a real election. It was neither free nor fair. It was fraudulent. The massive number of Belarusians protesting peacefully makes clear that the government can no longer ignore the people's calls for democracy. Yes. Can we have the president keeping his promise of ending endless wars if this announcement on Iraq is just a drawdown, not a withdrawal? There's still troops in Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain. There's still troops. It's not really keeping the 2016 promise, is it? Um, the president's drawing down our troops. These things take time. Uh, we want to ensure that the Iraqi security forces are well-trained, um, and our U.S. troops have done a magnificent job doing just that. We believe uh, that now is the time when we can make this draw down, uh, keep the country stable uh, because of the training that our, our troops have done. So, kind of an attempt to kind of try and make it look like the promise is being kept in advance of the election? 
no, not at all. Uh, this is a, an expression that we believe that Iraqi security forces uh, can do this alongside the troops that will remain there. Um, and the facts tell the story that this president broke the 39-year-old streak of American presidents either starting a war or bringing the United States into an international armed conflict. So unlike past presidents, um, this president has prioritized peace through strength, which is his foreign really policy. Just one really yes, quick follow Chanel. Up, just really, really quick follow up. Chanel. Sorry. Just on the breaking the 39-year trend, how does that work if the president sent troops into Saudi Arabia? Chanel. Kaylee, thank you. Um, with Kosovo and United Arab Emirates, these are Muslim-majority countries spanning two continents now, each bringing some kind of agreement with Israel towards peace. Um, so my question is two points. Number one, have the Palestinians uh, opened up any kind of discourse with the White House as to their reaction to these developments in, in with Israel and Middle Eastern countries? And number two... Have the Palestinians actually expressed any interest in distancing themselves from Iran in the interests of Middle East peace? Yeah, through the deal, President Trump made additional progress on reaching peace in the Middle East. Uh, Kosovo and Israel agreed to mutual recognition and normalization of ties. And Serbia committed to moving its embassy to Jerusalem only a few weeks after the historic Abraham Accords between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. This is another huge step forward for broader peace in the Middle East and the rest of the world. I'd refer you to the Palestinians for their reaction, uh, but it is quite telling that this historic historic agreement between Serbia and Kosovo addressing a decades-long conflict was only mentioned one time on CNN and one time on MSNBC. Yes. Thank you, I want to ask about the Winter Olympics in Beijing in 2022. Uh, more than 160 human rights groups have called on the International Olympic Committee chief to revoke the Games from Beijing. Uh, with President Trump support an American boycott of the Games over the Chinese regime's human rights abuses? I haven't spoken to him uh, specifically on that, so I'd have to get back to you. Um, but this president has always held China accountable. His actions very clearly show that. Um, he has stood up uh, to the to China, um, unlike any president before him um, in modern history. But one thing um, I do want to address is um, just this really egregious, and I addressed it on Friday, but it's worth um, updating this, this Atlantic uh, story written by a liberal activist. Um, now you have 25 people who have spoken out and dismissed this story. And now you even have uh, the author of the story who said, quote, I share the view that it's not good enough, quote, referring to the fact um, that he uh, did this false report based on anonymous sources. Um, and basically, when you look at um, the liberal activist who wrote this, he has a very bad history. Um, he can't be trusted. The left's new hero used to be their number one enemy for his role in the U.S. entry into Iraq. Indeed, in the early 2000s, uh, this author was then at The New Yorker, and he extensively wrote on the possible links between Iraq and Al-Qaeda, a suggested link that was key behind the decision of U.S. involvement in Iraq. He relied on people who, in her, his words, quote, seemed to me to be credible, who said that they had information about such connections between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. And Goldberg's reporting simply backed up his view that the U.S. should invade Iraq. Um, in Slate in 2002, this author argued in favor of the U.S. invading Iraq. 
And later, he even admitted that he knew people blamed him for helping to get the U.S. into the war. Uh, he wrote a sarcastic piece saying, yes, yes, I know I started the Iraq war. Uh, his reporting cannot be trusted, as noted by the fact that 25 people have come out on the record dismissing uh, his report, the report by a liberal activist. Thank you. All right. A lot to unpack there. I guess we are the news because we talked about that, how there were no weapons of mass destruction and that he kind of, uh, you know, wrote it up. We know that there were no weapons of mass destruction. We know who the people were talking, saying yellow cake uranium was the first thing and then they took it to the next. That's just uh, that's just it. Now, I'm going to demonstrate to you how we're the news. And this was done purposely. So, you know, I don't just put up little, little videos. Uh, but let's just unpack a few things. So I want you guys to understand this whole China thing. President Trump is pissed at President Xi. And I'll tell you why. They had an understanding of transparency. Abe and him had an understanding. Hence, Abe is now resigning as prime minister of Japan. Right. He's out. Uh, they all. And I told you how Abe is. He's that guy in the club with the unbuttoned shirt sitting there playing friends with both the good and the bad. Right. Remember. So uh, uh, I, I want you to know that, uh, you know, he and President Xi had an understanding We're it's we're up against all of them. We need transparency. We need to be, you know, right there together. Now, I'm not discounting President Xi playing triple quadruple agent here uh, with the CCP. Uh, don't uh, take that as a mistake. Um, I wanted you, uh, I have a clip uh, for the AstraZeneca report. I did tell you months ago how there's a lot of homeless people outside of my building and the one homeless guy was on one of those trials and got very, very sick and that they're paying people a lot of money to go get injected. So that's um, that's something, you know, I, I said months ago, I mean, we don't need to repeat stuff like that. Um, but yesterday I tweeted out a tweet that I put out in March, March 25th, actually, that I said that COVID was all about impeachment. And now and you know what? Someone's like, you're so stupid. That's not it. You're so stupid. I also did tell you to remember one video and I found it for you. And um, I will share the link uh, for you guys to see it. But I did tell you on February 25th to remember this because this is what will bury them. OK, because once he wins, they're going to start impeachment on his handling of the covid saying that it was all fake and we knew it and we went along with it. And it was your fault, President Trump. Just watch. Just just, just look at this video. Hold on. Struggling with a slump in business due to fear surrounding the coronavirus. KPIX 5's Ann Makovic is live as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi addresses the issue there and. Yeah, come with me as we stalk uh, House Speaker Pelosi right now. She's been taking a tour down Chinatown, and we have stopped already at a temple. Uh, we've stopped at a fortune cookie factory, uh, a, the walk shop, which sells cookware. And now she is stomping at uh, one of the little gift shops in Chinatown, if you can see her live now. She has been uh, talking to people along the way, a lot of business owners, a lot of community leaders here in Chinatown, who have been concerned about uh, the, the optics of the coronavirus 
and uh, the fear that some people might have uh, of coming to a place like Chinatown that might have a lot of Chinese nationals. So she has been going around to show that it is perfectly safe to be here. Uh, she says that this is a very special place to her heart because she started a lot of her early campaigning when she started her political career, uh, some of it right here in Chinatown. And uh, we got some word from her earlier on sort of the message that she's trying to uh, purvey here. It's exciting to be here, especially at this time, uh, to be able to be unified with our community. Uh, we want to be vigilant about what it might be on the, uh, what is out there in other places. We want to be careful about how we deal with it. But we do want to say to people, come to Chinatown. Here we are. We're, again, careful, safe, and come join us. Yeah, and I want to point out that no cases of the coronavirus have been found here in Chinatown or San Francisco at all. So she's really just trying to point that out because they have seen a drop in business here. Uh, again, back at the uh, Chinese Bazaar gift shop here on Grant Street. Uh, she's a real tourist attraction in and of herself, as you can imagine. Uh, people are so excited to see her, people from uh, all over the world. And again, of course, right here in Chinatown, who are really happy for the speaker's support today. Live in San Francisco, Ann Makovic, KPIX5. Business owners. All right. So I told you I, I, I uh, put the link there. You should archive that video. It's going to be very interesting. Uh, because if you remember, uh, Nancy Pelosi was, yeah, time and Nancy. <laughs> you guys remember that story? That's how she did. This is from February 25th, uh, February 24th, but I played it for you guys on February 25th. And uh, I told you to remember that video because it's going to come into play. And now we're seeing the narrative. See, it's almost like I knew that it was about impeachment. Kind of like I know a lot of stuff. And so um, I posted the link for those in Twitch and um, I'm going to put it in the D live room too. Uh, so that way anybody that wants to archive, uh, please go ahead and do so. Uh, it will be important that we have uh, offline information uh, for after the elections. Uh, as you saw, the questions today were all about the president uh, misquoting numbers, misquoting anything, everything. And go back to my shows where I told you, this is where he's genius. I wrote an article of what he's supposed to do you remember and it's on Tory says now live they scrubbed that we put it back up and what did i say that he's not going to do anything he's going to let the governors do it that way we see where the hot spots of corruption are and again as history repeats itself it's the same place not only that right they're going to hold him accountable for saying well you said didn't they say oh you said it was so many you said it was this oh you called it a hoax at first and you said it was going to be done by april because he didn't think that the military industrial complex would have deployed shadow net with this but that is exactly what happened in march uh, so this is why i knew it was about impeachment i already know their communications and how they were going to spin this and i am so glad that he put their own people when they were like, tell us how many are going to die. How bad is this? He's like, wait a minute. Why are you? I'm the president. Here's the team. Here they are. Pence, Fauci and Burks. Take them here. Here are your specialists. I'm not a doctor. Here's your specialist. I'm the president. Here's your specialist. Oh, oh wait. Did they say something wrong? Oh, I said something in private. No, 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 no. We're going to play this game the way you guys want to play. Let's do it. So now when it comes back around that he didn't do it right, right? I told you guys in March, the first week of March, 
malaria. I also told you, I, because there's not a lot I could say, and I, you know, I, I don't think people understand, right? There's a lot, you know, I get like, I hate this cryptic stuff. Well, I'm not here to spoon feed you. And obviously, if I'm not talking about something, it's because I can't. Okay, because I can't. So I'm going to show you how we are the news today. You're going to see it now. You're going to totally see it. So I told you that this is going to happen and you're going to watch it play. That's why I had that archive snapshot of why Twitter banned me. No, they suspended me and I couldn't get back into my account. Right. Um, on March 25th, when I tweeted that out. So I retweeted it again yesterday. And I had someone on that thread saying, you're so dumb. It's not about impeachment. We have elections. How are they going to impeach him? It's not for now. It's for later. That's going to be their new narrative. They're imploding right now. Okay. Uh, everything's wait till shadow gate two. Okay. Super implosion. So let's see how uh, all your news today and yesterday were all about um, Beijing Biden, right? And, you know, I put a lot of things online, but there's a few things that I don't do. I don't put up a lot of little videos on my YouTube just randomly. Right. But I did put this one on. What's the title? Beijing Biden, September 3rd. Remember? And I played this. Let's take a look at it. I recorded it for you guys so you can see it. I'm just showing you how we're the news because everyone's talking about Beijing Biden. They're making pictures about Beijing Biden. They're they're talking about Beijing Biden. But, you know, everybody else is the news, not us. We are the news, not them. We are the news again. So this is how you know uh, what's up. Next time, this is Biden in Shanghai. Okay, that's in Shanghai where Biden is there. Feinstein is there. The, you know, I, saw, I understand that this is a little part of your leadership. And what a dramatic and Significant and change. If your answer is yes, what to make you to have? And there's a, an article in the Washington Times just today, uh, which makes a comment about uh, dozens of sales uh, known to the top officials of the PRC going to Pakistan. And this is not the first occasion. This has been a pattern which goes back many years. And uh, the State Department under the last administration and for some time has really backed down, not wanting to make a, not wanting to make a point about it. And uh, of all of the issues of concern between the United States or as the United States has with the People's Republic of China, that is the uh, that is the most significant. And if there's to be uh, a long term working out of problems and if we're to maintain the uh, preferential trade status, that's going to have to be resolved. With the students, I came away with... Jiang Zemin must understand that it's not in China's interest or our interest or anyone's interest, including North Korea's interest, to have a long-range missile capacity and that he should be talking to our friends in North Korea as well as Mr. Putin is and as well as we are that 
there is no benefit for such a development. If such a development occurs, in spite of a genuine attempt to reach a verifiable accommodation that that will not occur, then I think you will see there will probably be enough votes in the United States Senate to because he knew that they were going to get the votes. See, it's titled Beijing Biden. I tell you, Shanghai Biden. Why? That's the day that Hunter Biden got money. The day his daddy was there in Shanghai. Support a limited nuclear defense. What topic came up? I believe there would be a much greater willingness on the part of Taiwan to accept some of the entrees made by um, Beijing if they believed they were heartfelt and believed that they could be trusted. Conversely, I believe Beijing would have a very different attitude about Taiwan and Taiwan's future if they had a clear understanding of the American position relative to Taiwan. China is not our enemy. There is nothing inevitable about China and the United States not being as cooperative as any other two nations in the world. So that was it. I just wanted to show you how we're the news now. And the reason is, is because I put out information for the people that need it to find things. This is how you find when he got paid, how he got paid, how all of this is happening. You see what I'm saying? We are the news. That was six days ago that I uploaded it on YouTube. We are the news. Now everyone's like Beijing Biden. Now everyone's making pictures of Biden in Chinese clothes. We are the news. But you know, the They don't want you to know the news. They want you to have their news, not real ones, their news. Um, Yeah, Beijing Joe. He was there the day, all right? His son got that money, 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 money. So, um, you know, the interesting thing is we had questions about Palestine in the Winter Olympics. That was a trap to say, oh, the president is going to stop athletes from going because, you know, uh, there is so much, uh, uh, you know, going down, uh, you know, and he's racist. We're going to see news. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about Libya and Lebanon quickly. Um, I just wanted to say you're going to see a new uh, push for a narrative. Uh, I think they already started to push it out yesterday about the bombing in Beirut. They're going to totally tell you that, you know, the explosion had horse manure. And now we already knew because we were live on air when it happened. Uh, No, it's not. It was a red plume and it had lithium and there was other stuff because I know my stuff. Okay, so you're going to see them trying to excuse this and putting it through and talking about, uh, you know, how the government we already covered that. We could just listen to that. Right. We could just listen to that. Hey, Serbia, I'll be talking about Serbia and Kosovo soon. What they've done there, former Yugoslavia, the whole nine yards. It's incredible. Yep. It's a Donkey Kong. So, you know, that's for another time, another time. Uh, So. Uh, you will see that coming into focus. They're going to start trying to grab narratives where they can because uh, real news is uh, very, very dangerous. Someone asked me uh, during the press conference, hey, you were in the Navy, any intel on, you know, um, EBEs? Look, I was wearing the uniform for 
Oh, it's one, like nine months, maybe. Like, that's if. Um, I didn't get much except for understanding certain systems and learning weaponry uh, through my training because I was pulled out uh, at the completion almost of my training. So um, other stuff that I learned was uh, without my uniform, still serving my country, not in the best capacity because, like I said, uh, the attitude that Zucker had, I had for a very long time. Um, now, let's move on to our news. Let's go with AstraZeneca. Ah, and you know what? This totally dovetails what we're going to be talking about today, about molecular upgrading. And hopefully Elon Musk is there. In other news, we had Attorney General Barr today address us and advise us of Operation Legend's success. Uh, you know, obviously we had the press secretary shred uh, uh, Biden with his fake ad. You know, they pander to those that are dumb. They pander to those that are stupid. I mean, people are really grasping for straws right now. Um, even in, in, uh, the way they attack people, you know, they start really big and then they narrow it down to one thing that they really think they got. It's the same thing here. So take a listen to, um, Maria Bartiromo's explanation. And then today you're going to understand where the the problem is here and why it's global trials of a coronavirus vaccine a participant in the uk suffering an adverse reaction causing that stoppage as stoppage as we just told you the pharmaceutical manufacturer is calling this pause in the trial routine uh, but it is unclear how long it will last joining me right now is advisor to president trump and coronavirus task force member dr scott atlas and dr atlas it's great to have you this morning thank you so much for being here your reaction to this pause in the COVID vaccine at AstraZeneca? Well, you know, this is one of the reasons why clinical trials are done. <clears throat> you know, this is an indication that the trials are being done safely. Things happen during trials. That's part of the reason why we can't totally predict exactly when things will be available. I mean, you know, this is not, not anything really unexpected. As they said, it's routine. And these are investigated. But, you know, uh, that, that's exactly why we're doing the trials. So it, it, people should be assured by this. You know, what, what's your take on people's feelings out there about actually taking a vaccine? I mean, we have debates all day long about whether or not to get a flu shot. And that's just a flu shot. What about a vaccine and the idea that people are skeptical and may not want to take this, even if it is on the market? That's true. There is a lot of skepticism, uh, unfortunately, about vaccines in general. Vaccines are super safe. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's a mistake not to take a flu vaccine. But speaking of this specific situation, I think it's really unconscionable what uh, people in public uh, arenas are saying about undermining the idea that this is a safe vaccine production process going on. We have the safest drug production in the world. This is something that is done with our so many different organizations inside the government involved in the trial. There is a separate independent board of experts that is non-governmental, uh, that is the data and safety monitoring board. The president and no one in the administration has any input 
or any knowledge of the data as it goes. I mean, it's really, we're in the middle of a pandemic here. We have 200,000 people almost have died already, and people are inciting fear into people about the vaccine. I think this is really unconscionable. Frankly, they're, I hate to say it, but they're killing people by doing that. We have people who are high risk. They need the vaccine. And when this vaccine is available, and we're on track to have it available before the end of the year, but again, the timing is unpredictable, really, with accuracy, because it depends on the events that occur during the clinical trial. Uh, But, you know, this is something that people should feel extraordinarily confident about. I'm going to take the vaccine. I can tell you that. And everybody I know here is going to take the vaccine. Well, I mean, you're making a really important point, and that is that, unfortunately, politics is getting involved in a very serious medical issue for Americans. And that is, you heard Kamala Harris the other day say, I don't trust the vaccine. I don't trust Donald Trump. And so that's what you're referring to, correct? Well, I I think that there's a lot of people who are trying to cast doubt on the safety of, of the process itself. The process itself Again, it's completely independent. The president has zero input Mm. into this, and there is zero pressure coming from the president about this, none that I know of. And even if he wanted to, he could not influence the trial. I mean, this is really off the rails. Again, one of the many failures of people in the public sector here, public sphere, who are instilling fear into the public when we just need common sense and logic and just be rational here. This is going to be a safe production if we're lucky to have capitalized on this incredibly rapid uh, process, we're going to be thrilled to have this vaccine. So, and, and by the way, before I continue on the COVID vaccine, you just said it's a mistake not to get the flu shot, right, Dr. Atlas? That's right. The flu shot is recommended. And if you look at the CDC uh, recommendations, you know, the flu shot is only taken, by the way, by, you know, 50, 60 percent of Americans, which is a shame. Uh, and it's not 100 percent effective. It's not a magic wand, by the way. No vaccines are. But the flu shot is safe. We've known about this for years. It's important to get. We want to stop the hospitalizations. Okay. We want to stop the people who are going to die from the flu. And tens of thousands every year die from the flu. Yeah. In terms of a COVID vaccine, Dr. Anthony Fauci said that it's unlikely that a coronavirus vaccine will be released before November's election. He also noted that it is more likely by the end of the year. You said a moment ago you do believe that we will have a vaccine by year end. Is that right? Well, from what I hear, I'm not intimately involved with the vaccine trial, but I hear the discussions. And what I hear is that we're on track to get the vaccine before the end of the year. No one knows, no one, literally no one, I don't know how strongly I can say that, knows if it will be in October or not. So you can predict all you want that it won't be available. I just think no one knows. Uh, You know, it's all about how many in- sure. infections occur. It's all about the data. It has nothing to do with what somebody thinks is going to happen. But what is on track, okay. according to the people in the trials, is by the end of the year. So, Dr. Atlas, as we wrap up here, give us your status check of where we are right now in terms of the coronavirus. Obviously, there are worries that we're going to see a second wave in the fall. Here we are in September. Where are we? You know, well, we've had a, a tragic loss of lives. There's no question about that. Uh, we've learned a tremendous amount about the virus. We we know who to protect. We know uh, who's less vulnerable. And we know that uh, we have to do better in the nursing homes and with the elderly. And the administration is really doubling down on protecting them. But we also know the harms of the lockdown. 
prolonging the lockdown is a terrible thing. It's destroying families. It's destroying children. It's sacrificing our children's education and future. We need to safely, safely open the schools in person and do everything we can to do that, or at least have some sort of pathway toward that. And we need to safely reopen society because the lockdown is very harmful. As a public policy person, you have to care about the impact of the policy. It's not just about stopping COVID-19 at all costs. Yeah, you make a great point. Dr. Scott Atlas, it's good to see you this morning, sir. Thank you very much. We will keep watching. Thank you. Yeah, we'll keep watching. Well, you should keep watching. We are going to be going on a quick break. Uh, I think I'm going to do, let's let's put the lively music, I think, right? Give us a few minutes uh, so we can get some coffee, refill, and I will be right back where I am going to uh, explain to you how all this stuff works by showing you a person that I completely admire. That is, you know, yeah, let's do the disco. That is, um, is a genius. And I'm going to introduce you to him. I've talked about him a few times, how I went to his lab, um, you know, during my school time, uh, and how I, um, uh, learned a lot. Uh, just by observing, um, I, I think the people, the the most, uh, the current, right? The people that I admire that I've that I've seen them do work is Dr. Bonnie Bassler. She's incredible and a force to be reckoned with. And um, I mean, her mind uh, thinks, um, you know, to think that she's not even an upgrade is is incredible and um craig bentner is another one uh i am telling you like you're gonna see what i mean um hopefully you'll understand what's really going on and how this battle is happening and why too here we go let's go All right. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, so hope you got your refills of coffee. Hope um, uh, you enjoyed the little intermission. So now I'm going to take you to a guy that um, I um, was so impressed with only uh, because of what he achieved. And I want you to get to know him um, on a different level through this um, 60 Minutes piece. Um, he's the guy that I was telling you about taking the <laughs> the bacteria that causes urinary infections, right, um, to spit out oil, right? Remember that? How he's um, re um, reconsidering how we create fuel. And then he got that big Exxon grant. I've talked about it before. And um, I'm going to introduce you to this because it's a really, really hard um, thing to grasp. It'll change the way you look at things. Let's just say you'll see things that you didn't think were possible because 
This is a very crazy world. Here we go. The latest milestone occurred last year when the microbiologist J. Craig Venter announced that a team of his scientists had created a synthetic bacteria designed on a computer with man-made DNA. The announcement was greeted with a mixture of praise, skepticism, and rancor, which is familiar territory for Venter. He is one of the most famous scientists in the world, known for his pioneering work in deciphering the human genetic code. But as we first reported last fall, he's also one of the most controversial, an iconoclast with a brilliant mind and an outsized ego who has flaunted the conventional wisdom and tweaked the staid scientific establishment at every turn. The story will continue in a moment. have to spend much time with Craig Venter to understand that he likes to go fast. He's an adrenaline junkie whose willingness to take big risks has led to bold scientific breakthroughs, and he's not exactly shy about touting those accomplishments. Where would you rank yourself in terms of scientific accomplishments? Well, in the field of genomics, uh, it, I think the record is pretty clear-cut. So the first genome in history, uh, the first draft of the human genome, the first complete version of the human genome and having the first uh, synthetic cells. So the answer to the question is pretty high. I mean, it's really hard to assess that yourself, but I think the teams that we have and what we've accomplished are certainly amongst the biggest discoveries in modern science. If you have some stereotype of a scientist in your mind, Craig Venter probably doesn't fit it. He's scuba dived with sharks to gather microbes in the Pacific and spent much of the past summer sailing through the Greek Isles on his 95-foot research vessel, plucking new genetic material from the sea. He rarely goes anywhere without his wife, Heather, and their dog, Darwin. And their home, high above the Pacific in La Jolla, California, suggests the quest for scientific truth requires no vow of poverty. This is a nice place. I have been lucky, sort of the accidental millionaire in terms of People keep giving me money to, to start companies to exploit the, the science. He runs both a privately held biotech company called Synthetic Genomics and a nonprofit research lab, the Jag Craig Venter Institute. Together, they employ more than 500 people on two coasts, including one Nobel laureate, Hamilton Smith, and some of the top scientists in the world. So I'm much more like an orchestra conductor, uh, you know, than the uh, violinist. What do you think your greatest talent is? You know, I have an unusual type of thinking. I have no visual memory whatsoever. Everything is conceptual to me. So I, I think that's part of it. I see things differently. Venter likes to think big, and his latest advancement is no exception. So this is what all the fuss is about. This is the first synthetic species. And how long did it take you to make this? Well, if you count the total time from the conception, about 15 years. And how many millions? Uh, about $40 million over that entire time period. In practical terms, it's about as useful as the mold that grows in a bachelor's refrigerator. But scientifically, it's a milestone. The bacteria, which is similar to one found in the intestines of goats, was designed on a computer, manufactured in the laboratory, and gets its genetic instructions from a synthetic chromosome made by man, not nature. And it's alive. It's alive and self-replicating. It means it can indefinitely grow and make copies of itself. 
So I was at the Institute. I um, was there. I saw his little blue bacteria, which is how he can tell uh, he manipulated. So let me explain it to you in very simple terms so you understand what he did. So I've mentioned this before on my show where your body has two forms of DNA, okay? So you have your regular DNA that uh, gives you your eye color, your history, your memories. I, I mean, nobody else says your memories are stored in DNA. I'm telling you that. Um, no one knows where memories are stored, but I'm telling you that it's in your DNA. It's coded in your DNA. Now, uh, what he did was he took a mycoplasm. So that's a type of bacteria that doesn't have a bacterial wall. It's one of the simplest forms of life. It, it, mucosal, meaning it's just like like a blob, okay? And the 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 bacteria has circular DNA. You also have bacterial DNA. And that bacterial DNA is called mitochondrial DNA. It is where we have bacteria that actually provide the energy for our cells. So within your cell where that two meters of DNA is stored in the nucleus, there is another organism, an organelle if you would like to say, that is a mitochondria. And that mitochondria is actually bacteria. That DNA is circular. When you have a mutation in that DNA, in simple terms, you're kind of fucked. Nothing will change that. <laughs> so mitochondrial, um, you know, uh, mutations are, you know, you're done. You're toast. That's your bacterial uh, DNA. And um, it's circular. It's simple. It's simple. It's very small. And it has basics. And that is the source of why you have cancer. Remember the video that I showed you at the beginning of this show in the first hour where I introduced you to how I was talking about DNA and how it condenses and the whole mitosis thing. Well, the way that the kickoff is to begin mitosis is by energy, how much energy that cell has to give for the process. Now, when it's done replicating, that cues the mitochondria to stop producing energy. If the mitochondria doesn't stop producing energy, then <clears throat> you continue to replicate. And that's actually the source of cancer. So, you know, when I see people analyzing, oh, we're going to do genetic therapy for cancer and do this, it's stupid. It's completely stupid. Just go to the on and off switch. Do you know why they're not doing that? Because we already have the cure to everything. This is what's dumb. We already have the cure to everything. Like uh, someone's like, oh, my gosh, the fan is going on in my room. Well, flip the switch. Switch isn't working. Then go to the power source and figure out where the problem is. That's basic, bare bones, simple knowledge. Overcomplicating things. Why? Why are they researching genetics? Why? Why, 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 why? The question, that's up to you. Why is your money being spent on all that crap when you just need the switch? I've said that millions of times. I remember that when I was in school, they were like, you're going to go, you should do this. I was like, no, I went to um, the Mitochondrial Institute in Ohio. Uh, I had fun there. I had um, privately funded with my own money and it was 
I work like so many jobs while I was in school. It's not even funny. I was constantly away from home and working and studying, but I had to go there. Why? Because I needed to find out for myself because I'm good at math and I'm good at patterns to figure out where that thing was, that thing that I, you know, how the telomeres correspond to your mitochondria, etc. So this guy here decided, I want to change life, but I'm not going to go straight to humans and allow nature to take its course, like through cloning or anything. I'm going to take the simplest organism, and how do you know something's alive? It metabolizes. It's barely there. And so what he did was, and this is, I, I don't know if this uh, 60 Minutes clip will actually tell you, but I can tell you where he had the problem. Uh, the problem that he had was, say, I'm just giving a hypothetical. I think it was like uh, 500. Um, the sequence was 500 and knocked it down to 385. Oh, it's been like over a decade since I um, uh, looked at his stuff. But I want you to think that there were just 10 genes, okay? Just keep it simple, right? And out of those 10 genes, four of them were responsible for causing virulence. So what he did was he knocked them out. He, he gave that organism that you see on your screen, this blue mycoplasm cell. It's like a blue cell, right? And the blue is what he did. And um, what um, he did was... He took out the genes he knew were for vi for virulence to make it like infect and you know be ah, right and kept it basic to the point where it just simply metabolizes means that it eats it breathes and it replicates and then what he did he built on that so he stripped it and then built on it now in a controlled environment because I was there when he tested it. In a controlled environment, it replicated, it would reproduce like nobody's business. It had his marker because when you clone things or you create things, you leave certain markers to know they are manufactured artificial and or clones. And his was making it blue, right? Uh, but what he did realize is, is that it, when he put it back out into nature, there was a lot of crosstalk between the genes and the virulence was there again. So even though he removed genes that he had, you know, how they analyze our genome and say, oh, this is the gene for, I don't know, your color of your eyes. This is the gene that makes you sad or happy or fall in love. And they knock them out. You're supposed to not feel those things anymore. You're supposed to not see those things anymore. This is why I said maybe you should watch on, I think it's on Netflix. It's called Equals. And it has that, you know, that actress from Twilight that has like no facial expression. <laughs> What's her name? Kristen something that was actually a Chanel model, whatever. Um, she plays in that where it shows that there was a society where they would knock out emotional genes uh, by um, silencing them. So instead of him just silencing the genes, he removed the genes on a very simple genetic code, which is circular from this bacteria. So I wanted to explain that to you because, you know, this is, this is how you understand the foundation. So the building blocks of life, basically. And so, well, CRISPR is something different. It's a, it's a program that we put in there to clip and snip and add. So don't get ahead of yourself. This is like totally basic stuff. 
think of it as like a, a line of 10 things. You knock out the three that, you know, give the characteristics of virulence and then you replace the three um, with whatever you want. And that's what he was doing. Did you design this to do anything in particular? No, we designed this just to see if we could do this whole experiment using synthetic DNA. And now that we know we can do it, it's worth the effort to now make the things that could be valuable. Just how valuable remains to be seen. But Venter believes this is the first baby step in a biological revolution, one in which it will be possible to custom design and reprogram bacteria and other organisms to churn out new medicines, foods, and clean sources of energy. What you're doing is programming cells like somebody would program software. DNA is the software of life. There's no question about it. Man. And that's key to evolution of life on this planet. And now the key to the future of life on this planet is understanding how to write that software. So you see bioengineered fuel, for example. I see in the future bioengineered almost everything you can imagine that we use. How far off is some of this? The first things will start to come out in the next few years. I think possibly next year's flu vaccine could come from these synthetic DNA processes. Instead of months to make a new vaccine each year, we could do it in 24 hours or less. He's already signed a contract with a major pharmaceutical firm to try and do it. BP is funding research to experiment with underground microbes that feed off coal and produce natural gas. And ExxonMobil has committed $300 million to Venter's company to genetically enhance an algae that lives off carbon dioxide and produces an oil that can be refined into gasoline. So you're trying to cut down on CO2 in the atmosphere, which people believe causes global warming, and also create a fuel. Exactly. The question is on the scale that needs to be done at. Mm -hmm. you know, facilities the size of San Francisco. Really? Yes, the city. Yeah. Venter and his team are not the only players in this growing field known as synthetic biology. For years, DuPont has been using genetically modified bacteria to make a compound used in clothing and carpets. Amaris discovered a way to genetically modify yeast to produce an anti-malarial drug. Another company, LS9, has altered the genes of E. coli bacteria to produce fuel. But all of them are modifying a few genes, not designing all of them. Venter's rivals say his method is commercially impractical, but he's made a career out of bucking the scientific establishment and earned lots of enemies with his brash behavior and his knack for grabbing research money and the spotlight. So what are your faults? Probably impatience is the, uh, you know, uh, the biggest one. I don't suffer fools too well that you know, I, I'm not going to ever win a political contest. A lot of people have said you're a self-promoter. An egomaniac. Yeah. True, partially true, not true at all. You know, if we hold a press conference, it's considered self-promotion. But somebody at a university, the university holds the press conference, and that's not self-promotion. Overly ambitious? I, I'm sure I'm very guilty of that. That wasn't always the case. He grew up in the suburbs of San Francisco as the prototypical surfer dude and a classic underachiever. I was a horrible student. I really hated school. Were you good in math and science? I was not really good in anything. Uh, you know, I almost flunked out of high school. You got a college scholarship for swimming, right? Yes, but I didn't take it. So at age 17, I moved to Southern California to take up surfing. That was it. That was it.
1965, reality set in. He got drafted off his surfboard, joined the Navy as a medic, and was sent to Vietnam to work at a field hospital in Da Nang. The experience changed his life and motivated him to go back to school and pursue a career in medical research. He became a rising star at the National Institutes of Health and just as quickly grew frustrated with the politics and bureaucracy of government science. When the NIH declined to fund some of his unorthodox new ideas, he left and found private investors who would. I think we have a real problem with how science is funded and done in this country. Almost every breakthrough I've been associated So I'll tell you about the NIH, because he came across the same thing, and I had this discussion with his lab, um, that I just asked him, you know, I have this idea and this, and they, the problem is why he left is because the NIH wanted to take control of the patent. This happens at universities as well. Uh, you know, when you find something and a university gets in, they own your patent. Okay, you have like a little percentage and your name is just there, but they're the owners because this is a massive industry for ideas. So this guy, he's a genius. He walked off. He was like, no, I just decoded the human genome for you. And, you know, I'm a nobody. And you want to take control of this when I want to use it for something else. The same thing goes for most geniuses out there. Uh, that's what happened with Tesla. He got in a fight, right, with all these big names and, oh, look at me. And, uh, you know, they were like, I'm in charge. You're not. You need to listen to me. I'm incredible. I have the money. I have the, right? That's what happens to all of them surely happened to Tesla, uh, Tesla. It happened to, uh, you know, um, M Musk, it happened to Bassler, but she, she got her way in there cause she, um, you know, kind of tied it into, uh, the whole squids and all that stuff. So I just want you to understand that there are, uh, they, <laughs> the top of the pyramid, right? Um, want to control you. Edison was one of them. I mean, you know, Tesla left college because he couldn't afford the tuition, joined, went to America, worked for Edison, had all these ideas. Nobody wanted to pay attention. People that actually have ideas to innovate, to change, uh, you know, obviously the road to hell is paved with great intentions, but they're always attacked. Even Dr. Zavos. Okay. He plays God. Okay. He's cloning humans. Okay. He was trying to deal with the fact of we should be, you know, test two babies. I mean, he's the father of that. If you're, if you're dying to get pregnant, right, they'll send you to all these fertility clinics. I'll tell you what, he's the best. He will get anybody pregnant. Okay. He's cloned humans. So he will get you pregnant with his eyes closed. But you know, he's got the Andrology Institute of America. He was outed from the University of Kentucky, hence why I picked that university first in the first place, because uh, he was there. And, um, uh, you know, all these big innovators have great ideas because they want to um, change the world for the better. So, you know, Craig's ideas are not far-fetched. Exxon's going to chuck a bunch of money for him to create things, to make things for fuel because they know it's 
limited. You know, everybody keeps saying the Saudis have so much oil. No, they don't. At the rate they're pumping, they only have 36 years of oil. It's done. The, the 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 fossil fuels have you know they're 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 measured it's a certain amount they don't just come up out of nowhere it takes millions of years for them to be created so uh you know <laughs> it's like of course they're thinking of the next thing and why not take a bacteria an algae and have it work for you think about it i mean it's there it's part of our uh you know biodome why not use it for whatever you need? There's so many applications that can be used to better things. Yet that's where it comes in cue music. Well, where does it stop? Like for the telomere caps, the research that I have done independently, I could tell you that could actually make people live forever. They, they peak at the peak of where the telomere starts to shed. And that's at the age of 40 about the age of 40, 35 to 45 uh, is where you peak. And, you know, could you imagine a world with just unlimited 35 to 45 year olds? I mean, where are they going to fit? So th there are many, many concepts here uh, that are ethical that people need to take into account. So how do, how do we control that? Because for people that have been, their software has been upgraded because like you said, DNA is a software of life. I've said that many times. Molecular programming is a lot more interesting and important than anything else. And uh, this is where it comes down to it. This is how things are done. Mm, I'm going to, I mean, you're going to, let me just finish this where it introduces you to him on a more um, base level. And then I'm going to talk to you of how the science proves a lot of the things you think about, you hear about, and it's like, that's a conspiracy theory. Was there a project this or project that or this? Wait, you'll see it. So let's uh, finish up with his bio. With ...is from having independent money. And once they worked, we can get tons of government money to follow up on it, but we could never get the money to do the initial experiment. In 1998, a company that made cutting-edge technology to analyze DNA hired him to take on the federal government in a race to identify all the genetic material in the human body. The federally funded Human Genome Project had already been working on it for years. Why did you decide to challenge the government? The way it was being done uh, just didn't make any sense. We ended up doing it nine months instead of 15 years. That's a big difference. <laughs> When the competition produced bad blood and bad publicity in the scientific community, the Clinton administration arranged for the two sides to announce a truce and a tie, even though many believe that Venter's company, Solera Genomics, was ahead. But for Venter, the celebration was short-lived. The tension between making science and making money and personality conflicts with his corporate bosses got Venter sacked a year and a half later. No, it's not corporate bosses. It's power. Okay. This is all about power. You see the politics, 
You see, you're going to say, well, why the heck wouldn't a president want private companies to go free and get things done? Kind of like what President Trump is doing. Hey, guys, we need a vaccine. We need a cure for all this crap. Let's retroactively remove all the rubbish within. Here's money. Do it privately. No influence, no politics, no politics involved. Just get the job done. Whatever angle you want to take. And I'm going to be watching you every step of the way. Why not do that? Why not when you want a cure? Why not when you don't want cancer? Why not when you don't want flus and bioweapons? Why not? Why not invent a way to make ourselves more turgent, turgid and imp... I'm going to stop there. You accomplished all this stuff and you got fired by the company that brought you in to do this. They locked the doors. They locked the doors and sent me away. The experience left him deeply depressed, but he was financially well off and still in business, having endowed his research institute with $100 million in stock at the height of the biotech boom. Within a few years, he was once again making waves in the world of science. Only this time, at age 64, he's not just trying to decipher genetic codes. Now he's trying to create them. This is a quote from uh, one of your critics. He's trying to short-circuit millions of years of evolution and create his own version of the second genesis. It's the height of hubris. It's irresponsible. And he can't tell you it's going to be safe. Except for the second part, I was taking that as a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you what we're doing is safe. There's no way that I can guarantee that other people that use these tools will do intelligent, safe experiments with it. But I think the chance of evil happening with this and somebody even trying to do deliberate evil would be pretty hard. Why? Because of the complexity of biology. Um, you know, we're not working with human pathogens. Uh, we're working uh, with algae cells. And part of our design is cells that won't survive outside of a facility or a laboratory. And I, we think other scientists will adopt these same approaches. There are some things that concern you about this. So it, it is powerful technology. You know, it's something that needs mm-hmm. to be monitored, absolutely. President Obama was concerned enough to ask his Commission on Bioethics to hold hearings on Venter's new technology shortly after the results were published in the journal Science. Apart from the legal and regulatory questions raised, there are some moral and ethical ones as well. And there are a lot of people in this country who don't think that you want to screw around with nature. We don't have too many choices now. We are a society that is 100% dependent on science. We're going to go up in our population in the next 40 years. We can't deal with the population we have without destroying our environment. But aren't you playing God? We're not playing anything. We're understanding the rules of life. But that's, that's, that's more than studying life. That's changing life. Well, domesticating animals was changing life. Uh, domesticating corn. When you do crossbreeding of plants... You're doing this blind experiment where you're just mixing DNA of different types of cells and just seeing what comes out of it. This is a little different, though. This is another step, isn't yeah, it? Now we're doing it in a deliberate design fashion with tiny bacteria. I think it's uh, much healthier to do it based on some knowledge and a better understanding of life than to do it blindly and randomly. You know, I've asked you two or three times, do you think you're playing God? I mean, do you believe in God? No. Uh, I believe the universe is far more wonderful 
than just assuming it was made by some higher power. I think the fact that these cells are software-driven machines and that software is DNA and that's the truly the secret of life is writing software uh, is pretty miraculous. Just seeing that process in the simplest forms that we're just witnessing uh, is pretty stunning. So, uh, you know, I beg to differ on that. I beg to say that the fact that so, um, so much intricacy and so much perfection is in within our biodome that, of course, uh, there's a master to all of this and there is a God. So he does his he knows that there's a higher power. I mean, he just contradicted himself that, you know, the software of life is, I mean, is evidence that there is a God. And so um, I have, uh, you know, I've tried in in ways that I can uh, convey information um, so that you can have a better understanding. I hope introducing you to him, yes, he's cocky. Yes, he's aggressive, but it's because he understands. See, once you understand, and I, and I get it, I, I get him. Because once you understand um, how things work, it's like you've seen the movies where uh, there's people that walk around and they just like see code in front of them or can see things that other people don't see, not like, you know, hallucinations, but they acknowledge things. Um, they see life differently because they understand. And so uh, he is a genius. I admire him. And that uh, there's a fine line of, uh, and I've crossed it many times in my life too, uh, because you know, I'm also, you know, human too. Uh, there's this fine line of arrogance that you get when you know something somebody else doesn't. And I am actually struggling with the fact that I've sat at a dinner table with people and they knew something was going on and I didn't. And that pisses me off. Uh, that I think that's the biggest blow people can have. But this is where the arrogance come from. It comes from. So everybody likes to say, well, he's self-promoting himself. He's, uh, you know, uh, so brazen, so, you know, God playing. Well, no, he was right on that. We've been playing God. We don't even have real corn anymore. There's no actual corn the way it was. We don't have tomatoes anymore. They're all genetically modified. Pets are genetically modified. Food is genetically modified. Everything is genetic. We have impossible burgers now. Everything is genetically modified. So, and that is coming from within. Even the medications that you get genetically modify you. Everything genetically modifies you, but they're upset that he is synthesizing from scratch something. And that opens up the world, right, to remedies of control too. So uh, it, this is a double-edged sword and it has to be a fine line. So I'm going to play this clip from ABC. 
talking about him creating the first synthetic cell. I've also been, uh, you know, at, um, at participating because I was a student at a, a PNA. Okay. So this happened with Stanford years, years, years ago. And cause I was an adult student, I was in my thirties, you know, I kind of used that card real well. Um, I, um, was there when they had synthetically created life and what they were waiting for was to wake it up. So it was all from, from ground zero, right? It's not like taking something, removing something. They created it from scratch. Remember, I've always said the five building blocks of, of life are carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and phosphorus, right? That's a, that's what makes up your DNA, right? Those, those five elements. So they created it from scratch and it was inert and I was so happy. Everyone was so bummed and I was so happy because that also proved that in order to create something or synthesize something, you still need the OG of something. I was excited that they couldn't, they couldn't wake it up. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't make it do anything. It was just a bunch of atoms connected together all perfectly and it should have worked and it didn't work. So uh, no matter how many building blocks you put together, even if you spark it with energy or anything, it's not going to work. Whereas when Dr. Zavos is cloning, what does he do? He takes things that already exist, okay, already exist and puts it together. But when you're creating something out of nothing, it is nothing because it's not part of the program. I can't explain it in any other way that would make sense right now. So this is just kind of, this hour is just for you to understand of what's going to be coming and to introduce you to how crazy this world is. They have made a major breakthrough in the quest to create life in a laboratory. For the first time, they have produced a living cell in which the active DNA was put together by computers. What does this mean for science? And does it mean there is now synthetic life? Dr. Richard Besser is here. Rich. That's right, Diane. Today's announcement marks a major turning point. Researchers have now created life from non-living parts. They call it a synthetic cell. World-renowned geneticist Craig Venter has been trying to unlock the mystery of life for 15 years. What have you achieved? We announced today uh, the first synthetic cell. Instead of having a genetic relative that it evolved from, uh, uh, the parent of this cell is a computer. What Venter has done is astonishing. With just four bottles of chemicals off the shelf in his lab, his team replicated more than a million bits of genetic code to create a living organism. Here's how it worked. They isolated bacterial cells and removed all of their genetic material, the DNA from inside. Then they took those four bottles of chemicals and used them to create new genetic material. They transplanted it into the empty cell. That material, that new cell booted up and began to reproduce and reproduce a billion times. I think this is the creation of life. And I think it's an experiment that shows that life is not a mystery. Okay. So see, this is what bad reporting is. That's false. So he didn't strip, he did not do any scant work. Okay. He didn't strip the DNA. What he did was he took out the DNA, knocked out a few genes, inserted a few genes, and then stuck it back in. Get it? That's what he did. I'm, I'm explaining it to you in layman terms because I do understand it that well. That's a mysterious force that infuses things that makes them come alive. If you put the right genetic message in the right order, put it into the right environment, it will come alive. But along with promise 
comes precaution. Like any great scientific innovation, this has enormous promise and enormous peril. Um, this may allow us to make more virulent viruses. This could unleash a bacterium on the world that has properties we didn't expect that could cause great disease or ecological damage. Scientists will surely debate whether this is truly creating new life, but no one can deny the potential impact of this achievement. Venter says that within a year, this technology will be producing vaccines, and in the future, bacteria may be used as powerhouses to generate energy and clean up oil spills. I'm not so sure with what the one person said, that life is not a mystery, by the way. But what's the one word you've been hearing from scientists all day? Historic. Historic. And it's going to be banner headlines in the scientific world for sure. Thank you, Rich Besser. So that was from 2010. Okay, that was from 2010. So let's move on to when Google start. Well, no, let's go to let's take it step by step. Uh, maybe I should take you to 20, 2008. I'm going to take you a little bit more back in time. Uh, this is this is actually I was I was I was there for this. Okay. Um, and this is where I was like, hey, I want to come and like hang out in your lab. <laughs> so um, here is. Uh, him explaining what he's doing. Just take a listen. So we start off with two primary questions. Can the chemistry actually permit making these incredibly large biological molecules accurately in the lab? And if we make it, what can you do with it? Uh, DNA is an inert chemical. Uh, can we actually boot it up uh, into a living cell? Uh, this is comparing the two areas. So the red line here is reading the genetic code uh, in the blue. I just want to tell you Epstein was part of this too. Line is our ability to synthesize DNA. It's actually five orders of magnitude uh, slower right now uh, for writing the, the genetic code than it is reading it. Uh, but this is changing exponentially, uh, basically just over uh, the last few months. Uh, and I think writing the genetic code will soon catch up with our pace of reading it, even though it's still uh, changing. Now, we thought this would be relatively simple. So there's machines called DNA synthesizers that can make very short stretches of DNA called oligonucleotides. We make pieces that are about 50 letters long. Uh, and we thought if we just make a number of pieces and they overlap each other, that they would just all go together and we could make a larger piece of DNA. It turns out you can, but the process with these machines for synthesizing DNA is very inaccurate. Uh, it's a degenerative process, so the longer you make the piece of DNA, uh, the more errors there are with it. Uh, so we set out to do an experiment trying to make the PhiX174 genome. Um, PhiX174, for those of you who don't know, was, is a, a bacteriophage. It's a virus that kills a bacteria, particularly E. coli. And it was one of the first viruses that was extensively studied. In fact, it was the uh, first uh, actual genome of any type uh, that was done uh, by Fred Sanger. We chose this because, in fact, its genome uh, is uh, very intolerant of changes. Uh, if you change the genetic code, uh, the virus uh, cannot uh, reproduce. So we developed some new techniques for actually accurately writing the genetic code where we can repair the errors in real time as we're making it. And for us, even though there had been 
an attempt uh, by another group to make the polio virus, uh, which was slightly larger than this. Uh, it only had one ten thousandth of the activity uh, because of all these errors and making the genetic code. Uh, we went from the genetic code in the computer, uh, designing uh, the pieces so that they would go together appropriately, uh, use this new process for error correction, and we ended up with the PC DNA exactly the right length. And we, when we sequenced it, it was exactly uh, what we uh, had designed and were trying to make. The exciting part was we took this piece of DNA and inserted it into the bacteria E. coli. Uh, and what had happened was uh, E. coli uh, recognized this as a piece of software uh, and started making uh, viral particles. Uh, and a true to form in nature, um, uh, when the viral particles were released from the cell, they turned around and killed the bacteria uh, that had made it. Uh, so th this is a uh, process we see all the time in nature. Uh, I was just speaking to oil executives and I said they clearly understood that process. Um, uh, but, but this was pretty exciting of just taking a, a piece of DNA and having it activated making viral particles. So we view this as the software actually building its own hardware. Uh, and th this is an important concept as we're trying to go forward uh, in this field that even most people that are working in this area have not truly uh, grasped uh, the implications of this, that we don't have to design life from scratch. Uh, we just have to design uh, the software appropriately. You see? So, uh, you know, as I said, um, there were attempts uh, and a lot of people were um, given software that they didn't know that builds its own hardware over time. Now, you don't know how it builds it. Uh, because people still haven't grasped that. Hence why I said Elon Musk is doing it wrong. Uh, you know, he's going top down rather than down up. Because uh, obviously whatever software was was um, used at that time um, was um, building its own hardware for whenever it was needed. Uh, it's kind of like having software on your computer. It doesn't activate until or it's not being used until you need it. So that was 2008. Uh, that's when I came across from him. That's, that's when I was like, Oh my gosh, I totally want to pick that man's brain. I totally want to, uh, you know, learn from him. Uh, I really want to, um, you know, make sure that I can, you know, um, see what he is saying, uh, and understand what he means by it and how he is going about it. So here's a short clip, just again, this is from 2010, um, where he unveils, um, I was trying to find the right video, but this one is where he unveils how and what the processes were. So how he targeted this. See, we always innovate when there's a problem. And so this is where he was unveiling it. This, this was the exciting moment in 2010. The larger, faster growing cell uh, takes only two days. So there's only so many cycles we could go through 
uh, in a year at six weeks per cycle. And you should know that uh, basically 99, probably 99% plus of our experiments uh, failed. So this was a debugging, problem-solving scenario from the beginning because there was no recipe uh, of how to get there. So uh, one of the most important publications we had was in 2007. Uh, Carol Lartigue uh, led the effort to actually transplant a bacterial chromosome from one bacteria to another. I think philosophically that was one of the most important papers uh, that we've ever uh, done because it showed how dynamic life was. And we knew once that worked that we actually had a chance uh, if we could make the synthetic chromosomes to do the same uh, with those. Uh, we didn't know that it was going to take us several years uh, more uh, to get there. Uh, in 2008, we reported the complete synthesis of the mycoplasma genitalium genome, a little over 500,000 letters of genetic code. But we That's the one that I worked on. That's the... Um, uh... That's the one that gives you urinary infections. We have not yet succeeded in booting up that chromosome. We think in part of its, its slow growth, uh, and in part uh, cells have all kinds of unique defense mechanisms to keep these events from happening. It turned out the cell that we we're trying to transplant into had a nuclease, an enzyme that chews up DNA on its surface and was happy to eat the uh, synthetic DNA that we gave it and never got transplantations. Uh, but at the time, uh, that was the largest uh, molecule of a defined structure that had been made. And so both sides were progressing, but part of the synthesis uh, had to be accomplished or was able to be accomplished using yeast, putting the fragments in yeast, and yeast would assemble these for us. Uh, it's an amazing uh, step forward. But we had a problem because now we had the bacterial chromosomes growing in yeast. So in addition to doing the transplant, we had to find out how to get a bacterial chromosome out of the eukaryotic yeast into a form where we could transplant it into a recipient cell. So our team developed new techniques for actually growing, cloning entire bacterial chromosomes in yeast. So we took the same mycoides <coughs> genome uh, that Carol had initially transplanted, and we grew that in yeast as an artificial chromosome. And we thought this would be a great test bed for learning how to get chromosomes out of yeast and transplant them. When we did these experiments, though, we could get the chromosome out of yeast, but it wouldn't transplant and boot up a cell. Uh, that little issue took the team two years to solve. It turns out the DNA in the bacterial cell was actually methylated. And the methylation protects it from the restriction enzyme uh, from digesting the DNA. So what we found is if we took the chromosome out of yeast and methylated it, we could then transplant it. Uh, for so there's always a backup plan uh, for your DNA to refuse and to cause um, these, uh, these defenses because just that's how beautiful your software is. Uh, so we're going to get, I'm going to get to where I want to take you now. Um, it's going to be pretty interesting. So this is where it gets, um, in, you know, I'm surprised that Craig hasn't been contacted by the White House. He might have uh, to work on um, certain things uh, <laughs> with um, our commander in chief that we need. Um, 
because uh, he does think outside the box. His mind thinks differently. And uh, we need people like that when we want to solve problems, even though people like him are more about the bottom line and pushing changes, right? It's the type of changes we need. So I'm going to first show you the research that he discussed that got Google really interested, okay? Very interested. So this is going to blow your mind, you guys, because you're going to understand a little bit more about time-traveling Tori here. The biological teleportation, which is life at the speed of light, we have two different parts to it. We have the ascending unit, which can actually read the genetic code of something, send it up to the cloud. And then the second part is the receiving unit that we call a digital biological converter. Uh, some like to call a replicator, uh, depending on where in science fiction history we're coming from. Uh, and it takes the digital code, rewrites the genetic code chemically. And then once you have uh, genomes built from the DNA, you can go in any direction. This got a real world test recently with the outbreak of H7N9 flu in China. A team of Chinese scientists isolated uh, the virus from the patient, sequenced it, and posted it uh, on the internet. And at the request of the U.S. government, we downloaded it and then less than 12 hours synthesized the H79 uh, virus, which for a long time was the only source that the CDC and the U.S. government and Novartis had of uh, this new emerging strain. Right now, from our process, uh, there's actually been a uh, flu vaccine being developed for the first time ahead of time of a new potentially very dangerous strain. So the notion I describe in my book is that one day, uh, everybody will have one of these little devices on their home computer, uh, and we can stop uh, pandemics before they start, because in areas where there's outbreaks, uh, you just download the vaccine uh, and vaccinate people very quickly, and we can stop the spread of things. But we have a long way to go to, uh, to achieve those levels. But these devices are real now. Uh, we have built the prototypes, and uh, they're in actual use. So what did he tell you there? He told you biological teleportation and how people will be able to download that software and how uh, he already had the prototypes. That's 2014. It's 2020. Are you understanding what I'm telling you? And the great thing about people like Craig is, is that he is not easily controlled. And someone said he reminds me of Berge. It's not, should we do it, is can we do it? And which is true, because when you understand how things are done and you know the power that it yields, uh, you then look at it from different eyes. Now, that um, that announcement attracted Google. Take a listen. ...of life. And you saw some excellent examples of it in, in the, the previous talk. And the thing I learned, I, I know who not to push too far. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, chemically, we wrote the genome, starting with four bottles of chemicals, literally going from the ones and zeros in the computer uh, to writing the uh, four-letter alphabet. And shown, in fact, that it's totally interchangeable between the digital world and the biological world. 
We then wrote the entire uh, 1.1 million letters of the genetic code, uh, booted it up, and got a new cell driven totally by the software. So that's what we call synthetic life. Uh, we actually use living cells to boot it up, but you change the software and you change the species. And you, as Martine mentioned earlier, you're also working on doing this with pigs yes. in order to create organs for humans. We're trying to create a humanized pig. I, I won't talk about the political implications. A humanized pig. Uh, uh, but uh, it's been done with monoclonal antibodies, which were developed in mice. Basically, the genome was changed so they would produce the human version, not the mouse version. And those can be used in human therapy. With rejection systems, our immune system recognizes all kinds of surface antigens. Uh, in the case of the pig, um, a lot of molecules that are very close to our own, but we're just rewriting the genome to change all of those to the human version so that when they're put in the human body, our immune system will see them as human organs, not as pig organs. When you did this work with the human genome under Clinton, that was 15 plus years ago now, you, you mentioned to me it took nine months Wait. Okay, let's stop right there. So this is Google. This is six years old, you guys. This isn't something new. Okay, this isn't something new. And we're talking about pandemic. We're talking about all of these vaccines. You need to understand ventilators. You need to understand things that are happening. And again, people that have... Um, see, Craig is now... It's 2020. He's at his peak now. What is the peak? That is the point where you wake up, where you're like on this train and you're just like, you know, for people like that. Okay. And um, the one thing you don't want, right, is to merge inert. And, and that's, that's the thing I like about Craig. He's not about merging static, non-metabolic process. He's not about merging humans with non-humans. He's more of the guy, like when I studied the salamanders and the re regrowth of um, limbs and ECM down at Wake Forest, um, I, I, you know, went to learn about that too, where they put powder of your extracellular matrix on your fingertips to regrow them uh, because salamanders, you know, you can chop them off and they'll regrow. So your body has a way of correcting itself. But for some reason, those genes that we have are muted for whatever reason it may be. They are muted, meaning they're silenced. This is why I say, Hey, you, you got Netflix, watch the movie equals. Maybe that'll help you understand the concept. Now, if you remember, well, most of you may know someone that has gotten a valve replacement. Do you know what kind of tissue that is? That's pig, right? And uh, what is it that uh, in some scriptures is the most dirtiest animal? Because it is evil. Think about it. Because if you read across the board all religious text and you piece together things, you can understand more. So... Um, I'm trying to just give you what you need for after the elections as just a foundation of, 
as simple as I can put it. And obviously, whatever's public, I'm telling you. Now, again, this is from six years ago. And this is what's in the public sphere. Okay. This is not what is already and has been already in the hands of few for many decades. I'm just reminding you that so you understand. To do one and a hundred million dollars. That's right. And now you're trying to do a hundred thousand of these in one year. Yes. Science has come very far. The the thing that's changed, and it just changed in the last 12 months, uh, I've been waiting a long time for this, is the threshold of DNA sequencing technology and computing technology has just passed this threshold that I was waiting for, uh, where we can now do, probably for less than $1,000, very large numbers of genomes. To try and sort out some of the traits uh, uh, that Dr. Fallon was talking about, these are rare events, probably fortunately in the population, um, on the order of maybe one in 50,000 or so. And so we need literally millions of genomes in the database to be able to find in each of us these patterns and understand what they mean. So uh, it's a law of large numbers. My genome's been on the internet for 15 years now, and there's not much more today that I can interpret from it than we could 15 years ago. That's because there's really not much to compare it to. So if we start to build up hundreds of thousands and millions of genomes with all the phenotypic information that goes along with it, just like the nice uh, uh, PT scans, we're going to do quantitative MRI imaging on everybody uh, that we can. And what it, we, there's nice software now developed by our colleagues at UCSD that take these images and convert them into digital volumes so we can get, for example, the hippocampus volume, uh, and you can then understand what's in your genes associated with that hippocampal volume and your memory. But we can measure changes in as little as three months. In fact, we can measure changes in your brain 10 years before any symptoms show up uh, for dementia. So it gives sort of an early warning system. It gives ability uh, to understand the genes associated with this. Uh, and, and hopefully uh, new avenues to do something with it. So it's a massive data problem like has never been dealt with before when you think about all the things associated with your life, uh, including how your brain works, uh, all your chemical composites, your complete digital uh, medical record. Uh, we're measuring all the chemicals in the bloodstream. We're measuring the microbiome, which is about... Uh, uh, you have 100 trillion human cells. You have 200 trillion bacteria. It's yeah, so he's telling you what I've been telling you. You're made up of more bacteria than anything. But when I say that if you look at, across all scriptures, religious, that the pig is supposedly evil, it's a source of evil because uh, it's not evil in itself. See, you have to be able to step back and look because history is not what they tell you. And um, our scriptures are not all face value. You have to think about it. How many of us have read the Bible from cover to cover a million times and every time you read it, you see more. So you have to understand that uh, using, uh, using things that are ours is good. Uh, how do I word this? 
So when I was a kid and I was playing with this computer that had no mouse and keyboard, I remember a game which was kind of like pick the odd one out. And we've all played those games or answered questions like that on tests. Uh, Here are three things. Which one is the odd one out, right? And it always seemed that the right answer was always the one that wasn't pre-existing, meaning that was created or was part of your biodome. Uh, I've told you before, you share DNA with a banana. Everything on this planet shares DNA with us. Um, This biodome was created to house us. It is all us in different variations. So the odd one out was always the one that didn't match with the us. And so uh, molecular programming should be done through nature, if done, if done. Because the question is, who silenced certain genes and why are certain things not available? I don't want to say available, not accessed. Just, you've always heard it. You only use 10% of your brain. The question is, why? Who did that and why was it done? Um, Because it wasn't supposed to be like that, right? Shouldn't have the bite of the apple wasn't supposed to happen. So where and how and why was this silenced, muted, turned off? That's the question, if we want to take it on a more technical level. Now, again, I say Craig is very smart for someone that isn't even upgraded, very smart. And that with smartness comes being, you know, arrogant. And he has that. Let me tell you something. This guy is, he reminds me, you know, let's do it faster and under budget. The way the lady said, oh, you did this work under Clinton. Remember, Clinton hated him. They were pissed because they were milking the taxpayers millions of dollars to supposedly decode the human genome, which I can tell you they already had. And here he comes, this private dude saying, I'll do it faster. Nine months. It's done with the technology that was available to him, which was like, we're going to get him. He's going to come to us. But people like Craig aren't people you can put puppet strings to ever. It's all about his mission. Same thing with Epstein. Try to get his hooks on that one, too. Didn't really work out. I can tell you that. Didn't really work out on that. Because people like that cannot be controlled. Uh, It's a certain type of personality. I mean, a lot of people hate that portion of our president. You can't control me. I do what I think is right. Now, how that aligns with your moral compass, how Craig aligns with your moral compass, how Zabos aligns with your moral compass, how President Trump's, uh, you know, movements and actions align with your moral compass is up to you. But at some point, minds like this come to that peak point where they're like, no, there's got to be good. This has to change. This is not good. And they have the ability 
to turn that into good. I'm, I'm trying to explain that to you because uh, I've, I've said it many, many times. See, people throw out words like narcissist. Look, Laura Loomer is young, right? And I told you she is a force to be reckoned with. As you grow in age, you grow with experience, you grow with interactions, and then you become ripe. Craig, it's 2020. This is the Craig you're seeing from 2014. The Craig of 2020 may indeed be ripe, just like the President Trump of 2014 was not as ripe as the one in 2016. You're getting that red color from the green tomato, but it's just not there yet. Uh, it's kind of like your mom used to say when you used to be like, I'm so short and all the kids are jollards. Everybody grows at their own pace. God's, you know, choice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You understand? Slowly. So, the problem, though, with people empowered with the ability to make synaptic connections and think outside of the reality box, okay, is dangerous because those are the ones that evil tries to put in a box even harder by luring them with temptations. And this is why time is everything. Timing is everything. And your soul is ripe at the right time to do what it's supposed to do. I'm speaking from a place where I was in without galoshes in the swamp. Maybe I pitter pattered in it too, because I couldn't see that it was a swamp. I thought it was a nice lake. And many people see that. So when you're ripe, it is at that point that nothing scares you. Well, I mean, you'll be scared, but you know what I mean. And you are ripe to do what's right. It's all about plucking the fruit at the same time. So there are many ethical questions people should ask themselves and see the balance. So, you know, I you know, people can say what they want, but this is where we come to that point of timing. So this is 2014. 2014. Just remember that. That's six years ago. Think of President Trump in 2014. Well, he was getting ready. To, think of him in 2004, 1990s. He was consistent, but he wasn't ripe yet, right? It's, it's not a personal thing. Everybody does. <laughs> um, and to understand these interactions is an important part of understanding uh, us as human. And uh, obviously this gets into the behavioral dimensions, as we just heard uh, very nicely. Um, but if we are software-driven machines, like every other biological species on this planet, understanding how to interpret that software, including the parts of the software associated with in, interacting with the environment uh, and feedback control mechanisms, we will start to understand our species quantitatively for the first time. Everybody's asked questions, what's nature and what's nurture? We will be able to solve in the next decade mostly of what's nature. By difference, everything else is nurture. And what do you see as the human application of that knowledge? 
the ideal application that we see is preventative medicine. If you know that you have uh, these risks for different diseases, uh, in the cases where you can do something about it early, you can change behavior, uh, change uh, what you eat, uh, uh, maybe have different therapies. But we're also hoping to find uh, the genes associated with a healthy life. For example, the scientific community has looked for genes and changes associated with diseases and traits that they're studying. Nobody's really looked for the other side of why don't you get that disease? What, why is he not a murderer? Um, I have a risk allele for Alzheimer's disease. Uh, and uh, a lot of people are homo heterozygous for the ApoE4 allele. In theory, if you go to 23andMe or any place else, it says you have a 30% increased risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. But not everybody, obviously, with that allele will get it. And uh, there's no history of Alzheimer's in my family, in part because uh, the males on my father's side died in their 50s and 60s, so never got a chance to see if they had Alzheimer's. Uh, but I had uh, quantitative uh, uh, MRI with radioactive dyes to see if there was any amyloid, which you can actually detect 20 years before uh, you would have symptoms. Uh, in so, okay, let me just explain this a little bit in more layman what he's saying. So he's like, okay, so you have, a, as you saw in the first hour of the show, I played you in an old video of mine where I was explaining how DNA is packed and how important it is to be packed so tight uh, for replication so we don't have mutations, or this is how we have extra chromosomes. You get it? This is why we have that. There's a disruption in the cycle. So people have to ask themselves, okay, so I have a chance of getting this because my gene says so, right? Kind of like uh, the double mastectomy thing. Oh, you have this, and maybe there's no history, of that. I, I, I think I mentioned to you guys once, maybe it was over a year ago, when I was in um, one of my undergrad labs, or was it my grad lab? I think it was my undergrad labs. Uh, we had to, no, it was, it, was a, it was a grad course, but I was taking it as part of my undergrad. Um, we had to parse our own DNA and, um, f you know, use PCR, run the PCR and find the jumping gene allele. So the jumping gene allele uh, is an allele that people have when they have had African or, well, basically all humans have it. Just that's the rule of thumb, the jumping gene. That's what it's called. It's a specific allele that shows that you derive from the people of Africa. Not that you're black, but that you are from human, right? So everybody has it. <laughs> so um, I, I ran that test and I remember... Um, my um, my uh, professor was like, how do you not have the jumping? I've never seen it in 30 years. I was like, I don't know. So he thought that I did it wrong. So I ran it again and again. And I became an expert at electrophoresis that day. It was my first time interacting uh, with the equipment and boom. And so, you know, this goes back to things that I've mentioned before, haplogroups. Those are really complicated things. We talk politics, and believe it or not, this science, you know, trip in science is uh, all about politics right now. But uh, th that shocked him because the allele is a marker, right? A genetic marker. 
So he's explaining to you how he has a marker that says Alzheimer's. So obviously no one's had it and he's thinking the right way. Well, I have it. No one's had it, but maybe it's because they were dead and it never came up. But what he did was a test where it can check for amyloids. Remember, I told you that people that have dementia or Alzheimer's in general, they get tangles, uh, amyloid tangles. They're, they're tau tangles where it's like proteins that kind of um, block the pathway because your communications, believe it or not, and it's hard to fathom in your mind on such a tiny, tiny scale, they literally walk. It actually looks like the protein is walking along a line to get the communication, but it's just so instant. You can't believe it. So prions are different. Prions are misfolded proteins. That happens with Kuru. Uh, that was something that happened with mad cow's disease. That's a tangled protein, the prions. That's different. Um, this one is tau tangles and, you know, the amyloid. So that's what he was getting checked. That's what he is um, trying to explain, that he had this gene. So then he went for a full, you know, um, examination of his brain to see if he had the precursors of you know, creating these tangles in the future. So uh, that was the whole, you know, explanation there for you of what he's saying. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to simplify it for you so you can understand it, that the test was to check if he had, you know, it's kind of like if you know that you have weeds, uh, that you might have weeds in your garden. So what do you look? You look underneath that tarp protecting your, you know, flower bed or whatever to see if you have weeds growing under there. And you know that it's inevitable that you have weeds in your garden. That's basically it. My brain is totally uh, void of amyloid. So I have a clean bill of health, at least for the next 20 years. So investors, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so why not? You know, if I have these genes associated uh, with increased risk and I have multiple wounds, not just APOE4, there must be a protective alleles that also prevent that from happening. The same is true for breast cancer and almost any other trait uh, that you can find. Uh, any of the done 23 and me, there's very few, if any things on there that say, all right, you are in the hundred percent category. Mm -hmm. It's in this one in a thousand to maybe uh one in three risk. It's never a hundred percent. So understanding our complexity is part of this massive computer analysis we're going to do. Um, if you can turn on the protective alleles, uh, then even if you're at risk, you can change things. Uh, we saw examples of how changing the environment can maybe turn on and turn off different genes. If we understand that at a, a key level, uh, we can change humanity in lots of ways, but primarily shifting medicine to a preventative medicine paradigm. So here is where I insert again when we talked about uh, the vaccines and um, flu vaccines. So I've told you guys that I got fired um, when I was doing a work study at the CDC because I wrote a report and I said that, um, and this is 2008, and I had said that the vaccine that they were preparing for 2009, uh, you know, for that winter time, you know, was um, not good because it was using pig cells and the RNA would be silencing certain protective genes and um, is coding our DNA with pig DNA. And then we had the outbreak of H1N1 because of it. 
So what he is saying here, okay, and this is 2014, is that rather than us trying to find ways <clears throat> to put band-aids over things, is um, to figure out what genes are being silenced. Because your body has been created to be perfect. But for some reason, there's retrovirals and there's coding in all these vaccines that seems to be, oh, we're just doing it because we want to help you, right? When in essence, they're silencers. They stitch up. Remember at the first video that I told you that it combines in certain ways, but there's doors where you can read and then you activate and then you pull out. Yeah, I've explained this many times over the years. Yeah. And I talked about it on Hagman, which by the way, everyone was like, oh my God, you said you were, look, my handle was Dr. Lindemann because I thought I would have been done with my PhD. I mean, at least get something out of my, uh, you know, uh, research and attempts because I was enrolled in my MD PhD program. Didn't finish it because, you know, doing what I was doing was more important than me, you know, getting that tap on it. Well, I should just publish an article actually to get my PhD. That's how it works in the medical community. But anyway, um, I talked about it, uh, about the epigenetics and how they crosstalk with each other. And, you know, I hate it when people say it. Uh, PhDs are also doctors. And I was a candidate and I had finished all my classwork for it. I just didn't publish my paper. So for someone saying that I was, um, you know, what was it called? Pre you know, putting it out there so it happens. When I um, registered my Twitter back in 2008, 2009 as DR Lindemann, it's because, hey, someone would have taken it, right? But anyway, I talked about it then too. <laughs> no, I can't publish it. That takes money and time. And right now, there's more important things to focus on. I already know the knowledge. A paper's not going to tell me if I'm smart or not. Um, you know, I really don't care. Yeah, manifesting. That was the word that I was looking at, manifesting. So anyway, <laughs> kind of like tweet words. Manifested that one because if I hadn't gotten it, somebody else would be tweeting with that, right? But um, anyway, so what he's telling you is rather than focusing on you know, turning things off or identifying where the genes are. This is where they're milking things because I'm going to tell you what, all this money and research that's going into uh, researching the human genome that of people who are sick, like, oh, if you have colorectal cancer, it's this genetic thing or this. It's, it's not about helping you. It's about helping how to amplify or how do you reduce it? You don't. You can't. You can silence a gene. Right. But if you watch that movie equals, you'll understand that is so incredible that, you know, my daughter actually found that movie. Um, you'll see that the, the, the silencing of the gene doesn't work because of epigenetics. So what Craig is saying, which is perfect, is rather than silence the gene that is responsible for disease, what we need to do is find the gene or the autocorrecting mechanism and amplify it. Huh? You see the one that's already silenced. So this is key here because the discovery of the human genome of what it is doesn't, you can't do gene therapy. It's so dumb to think that you can go in there and knock something out that God put there. But what you can do is amplify and showcase and give life to that that is being hindered because of all the garbage you have in your body. Make sense? Uh, 
That is what I am, you know, your software can have issues, but it's not because you weren't made perfect. It's because of intervention. Remember how he said nurture nature, right? He's like, we'll discover nature, but not the nurture. Nurture is your environment, what you breathe, what you eat, how you talk. You know, when you're pregnant in the first three months, people don't really pay attention. Those are the most crucial ones. That's where all the signaling can go wrong. This is where being upset, being stressed out, having too much cortisol, doing the wrong thing in those first three months can wreck the human being that you're creating because it's all about cellular signaling. So, uh, you know, getting a flu vaccine when you are pregnant, big what? You know, so especially when it's experimental. So, this is this is what he's inching to. This is what I was trying to say about the vaccines. One of the concerns is that the understanding, the acknowledgement of the underlying uh, propensity to be some way goes deeper and farther, faster than the understanding of how to actually prevent that thing, such that we know, for example, that you have a propensity to have Alzheimer's at some day in the future, whereas we don't have a cure and we don't know exactly what will prevent that. How do you tell the consumer or the average human, this is valuable information, even if we haven't gotten to that next phase? Well, medicine has totally proceeded on that basis. You can measure something uh, before there's ever a treatment or a cure for it. And usually having a quantitative measure and understanding the underlying molecular components will lead to these kind of treatments uh, much faster. But there's sort of, it, it, it's very clear. There's like two categories of humans. There's ones that want to know this information and ones that don't. And, and it's amazing. It's in every group. If you ask medical student classes, half the class don't want to know. It's scary. They're going into medicine um, and they're advising everybody else on this information. But uh I don't understand how you don't want to know. Not, it, as, as the video said, I learned in Vietnam, knowledge is power. Knowledge is power for your own life. It's knowledge for your, uh, it's power for your family. Uh, preventing disease and knowing something in advance you can do something about, I think is the most empowering thing anybody could possibly know. Um, but we obviously don't want to force it on people, but we want to show with clear examples by having this data, how much more you know about your life, how much more your physicians will know, how it can totally change the directions and outcomes. Our goal is to help people have healthy, long lives, not necessarily uh, live to 150. But if you do have a healthy uh, uh, life, you're probably likely to have a much longer one as well. You brought up Vietnam. Um, you grew up California surfer. Yes. Self-described slacker. <laughs> and then you went to Vietnam. How much did that shape the work and the efforts that you're making today? Uh, tremendously. I, I moved from the Bay Area to uh, uh, Southern California to take up a surfing career and uh, got drafted off my surfboard, which was uh, uh, a tremendous cultural change. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I learned uh, being in the middle of a war that uh, if you had knowledge, you could changed uh, the outcome of people's lives. You know, if you didn't have that knowledge, you had to watch them die. <clears throat> so it was a, uh, a very powerful lesson that uh, uh, 
basically has driven me for the rest of my life. It set you on your path. Yeah. You knew that it was about finding as much about the future as was humanly possible to protect as many people as humanly possible. Well, and to change the outcomes from knowledge, you know, even looking back to what medicine was like in the 1960s, it was frighteningly primitive. Um, it's still pretty primitive. I mean, we know roughly 1% of the knowledge that's uh, contained in our genome. I mean, look at the examples uh, that Martine just gave of, you know, this story keeps happening over and over again of, uh, uh, finding uh, new treatments, new avenues that go beyond conventional wisdom. That's why I love some of the, the earlier stories. Uh, and my career has largely been based on ignoring uh, wisdom and, and, and what's possible. Uh, the uh, current NIH director. Uh, and like I said, the Craig of yesterday is not the Craig today. Kind of like, you know, what happened to him to change so much? Exactly. It's got to be something big. And for me, that's what changed me. I was as cocky, if not more, you know, when I get angry, that that side of me creeps out. You know, when you have knowledge, you know, you have power. And so there are certain moments in your life that you might experience at a young age and they don't come back to wake you up until you're older and you're ripe for the picking. Uh, everybody has their time. And this is, you know, things people need to understand. This is going to be coming up. And, you know, I don't think Elon is ripe yet, but he's there. Uh, he's <laughs> he'd be like, you've got to be, you've got to be such a narcissist to, you know, criticize it. And it's like, I'm okay with that. You can call me whatever you want. I'm, I'm confident in where I stand. So, it's important that we listen. Uh, turned down with prejudice a grant in 1994 uh, to sequence the first genome in history, as it turned out, with this new method that depended on mathematics and computers. Uh, you know, in almost every case in history, conventional wisdom is wrong. Uh, and we have a chance, if we have a new starting point with a new data set, to totally change the future. Uh, I mean, this is, we're, we're at this threshold in humanity. I, I don't think we'll have totally merged human uh, machines, um, but I would love it if I had a USB port on the back of my head. and I could, You would uh, want that. I would absolutely want that, uh, you know. What uh, would you want it to do? Um, well, if you didn't have to go look up things on Google, if you could just, you know, <laughs> Uh, You'd want it to put Google out of business. I, I, I'm going to Paris today. Can I get the French uh, app uh, so, so I can speak French? I mean, who, who knows? <laughs> you know? uh, it, it would really be nice if surgeons had this information. Um, uh, if your doctor actually knew something besides what you tell them you, they found on the Internet. You know, people are educating their physicians. <laughs> uh, they're not educating themselves. Um, we need some ways to have this digital DNA constant interconversion uh, to upgrade our software and to understand it, to understand uh, uh, what we heard with these uh, behavioral traits that affect very much of society, uh, affect people's lives. Uh, but it's also an important lesson in terms of um, people who get very uh, 
caught up in the eugenics of this. If we know what causes manic depression, we want to eliminate it. But Kay Jamison uh, uh, wrote these books on how most successful people have some degree of manic depression. So um, we could wipe out the success of humanity by trying to correct so-called errors in the genome. So we don't have the knowledge to rewrite the human genome. Um, we're not trying to make smarter pigs. We're just trying to make them as good organ donors. Uh, we need to be very careful about trying to rewrite our own genome. But we do have the ability to understand that information and to act on it and maybe use the same tools that we're using to rewrite the pig genome to rewrite the genome of a stem cell uh, that could then uh, reactivate. Um, you know, I like to coin new terms and new uses of things. Um, if you're making something more youthful, is that euthanizing them? Um, it, it's not the normal usage <laughs> of the word, but, uh, you know, um, we wanted to make it the company slogan, but I got talked out of it. You know, our goal is to euthanize people, but uh, <laughs> uh, 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 but we can just like what happens with stem cells, you can reprogram your DNA uh, to be in a more youthful state. It's been one of the consequences of the early bone marrow transplants. Uh, Bob Harari, uh, co-founder of uh, Human Longevity, has actually found that. Uh, looking back at these patients after the ones that survived the stem cell transplants actually had a much more youthful state because their DNA got sort of reprogrammed to this earlier version. So there is hope for uh, trying to eliminate disease as we know it, um, or at least uh, postponing it, um, and to improve the human condition through the ultimate use of this knowledge that we've all been working for. So what does the future look like 20, 100 years from now? Uh, I used to get asked this question. So 300 years from now, you're looking back. And I said, well, I hope I'm still there to answer the question. But, uh, yeah, but that is really not the goal. I, I think if we can turn medicine into an information-driven science, we will basically, in the process, turn humanity into an information-driven species where we're working from knowledge, uh, not from millennia of myth and, uh, um, and the strange things that happen in our societies. J. Craig Venter, thank you. Thank you. So, okay, so that is uh, the Craig in 2014 that was peeking at you, um, that struggle that everyone has. I had that struggle. Um, in uh in well the first initial blow i would say the first initial blow was 2003 but i didn't realize it until 2005 and then it all came into focus in 2008 it's a process because you struggle with what you believed was reality and what is reality and you know the anger that most of uh uh these uh, powerful people have okay is um that if someone was to say that they despise God, okay, this is just how I see it. Because like Craig said, why try to discover why the disease, um, why the disease is there? Why not find those people that don't have the disease and, uh, you know, 
bring that up. Raise the good up. Why focus on the evil when you can focus on the good is what he was saying. So when someone like, you know, that seems to defy death all the time, you know, those pigs, man, um, uh, you have to think, why would something evil despise something so perfect that created life, right? Based on unlimited information, a garden of Eden where you had access to everything. But then suddenly one bite of the apple and you're silenced and you only have that bite of the apple, that one bite. Is it jealousy? It's being upset. Tell you, think about it. Think about when you were a kid, because in order to understand what drives them, why they hate President Trump, why they hate good, why they hate, you have to think of it this way. It's like, oh my God, it's like someone giving you access to a computer and you're only allowed to use 10% of it. And you have only that 10%. And some people are allowed to use more. So you're only stuck with solitaire, but I get to play Call of Duty, right? And so people are upset. Why does that person play Call of Duty? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to make solitaire bigger. So I'm going to take it and do it like this. And I'll just steal from Tori, steal that baby and steal that this and put band-aids and band-aids and band-aids and show you that I'm smarter than you. I'm going to fix this. Ooh, look, I stole this and brought it back and I'm going to make sure that I can use it with my friends. And then it's like, well, see, that's not how it works. Good doesn't work like that. Good is there. It will never go away. Even in the most evil place, the darkest place, there's that spark of light. And the people that can identify the light more, and that was so nicely said by someone earlier, is those that know the dark. And this is why most of uh, the saints we have and stories that are told and even the 12 apostles were all people that were what? Walking in the dark. And they were able to acknowledge the light. And this is how you can start to see. Now, some people had been dragged into the dark and trained to be in the dark and trained to be soldiers for the dark. But again, It is not yours to control. You cannot control people. You cannot control someone's soul. So no matter how many upgrades you put at some point, uh, you know, your firewall is destroyed in a sense. I'm trying to kind of make this more linear for you. So what you need to know from this is that there are many things that you haven't seen. I'm sure Over 75% of you never heard of Craig. I've talked about him on my show and, you know, not a lot of people listen and then go and search, right? Not a lot of people do. In this day and age, we are because we've been locked down. So it was a perfect opportunity for word to come out and to trigger the seeking of the knowledge since everything didn't make sense. It was perfect. This is how you turn something that was meant for evil into good. And so as the November elections come, right? That is when you will see this information that you were given today help you discern more after November. You know, got a lot of ventilators. 
So I just wanted to leave you with that to understand that um, good always wins. And there may be O clouds already. He talked about it in 2014 and had prototypes. But see, Craig was just your guy, a guy. Not part of any specific, um, you know, education and schooling. You know, I'm, I'm just saying it's it's different. So when I had mentioned I've got so much on Epstein like you wouldn't believe, it's because I didn't focus on the nefarious portions of it, but the experimental part. That is where it really is. A lot of people didn't know that he ran 15 years of AI research in Ethiopia. And this is like from decades ago, decades ago, when you didn't even know what AI meant, right? You were still using dial-up. I was telling you that we were sitting there and we were just talking about how to prevent, listen to this, uh, not prevent, mitigate our own soldiers and people in embassies to not copy files. And that's how uh, the Stuxnet was born. These are um, important milestones for people to understand. What you see is literally 10%. Of what they have. And today I showed you Craig up, in tw up until 2014. A lot can happen in six years. I mean, look what happened in six months. The world has completely changed. Look at your life. I can tell you for a fact. Last year, right now, today, the 9th of September of 2019. Damn, I would never think that I am where I am geographically, what I'm doing. I never thought my life would have completely changed. Nothing. Because your life can change from one second to another. So think, if a man that you saw battling just speaking, going back and forth, back and forth, you know, he didn't mean a USB. Molecular software doesn't work like that. <laughs> you don't integrate with tech. If you integrate with tech, that's where you got problems. But when you can work on what God has given you to ensure that your programming is there, that's the good part. See, that's why we have so much manifestation of ADD out there. So many synapses happening. So much information overload. This is why it's the new uh, problem. This is why there's so many drugs to put your kids on. Well, can't have smart kids now. We need to move it along. So um, on that note, embedding tech into the body, right? is not the way to go. Um, now, speaking of politics, you're going to see just how important everything in medicine plays a role in all of these things. You're going to see that. You're going to see how time is important in this too. So I hope that the third hour, third, well, one and a half extra hour. Um, 
helped you, even though it's really hard for me to say a few things, uh, only because it's, um, it's way too much. I would encourage you to listen if you want to some March episodes that I had. They're on iHeart. I have an amazing archivist, um, WH Tempest. He's incredible. Um, he actually came into my life without me asking, um, and archives everything I do as if he knew that I sh- was going to struggle. I mean, I don't know. Did he know that I was going to struggle at some point? I mean, God bless him. Um, you know, he archives everything. So March, when we were talking about all these things, I urge you to look into it. Now on YouTube, I will split the shows. Um, so it's not a huge file and that there's the second part and then the first part, uh, cause the first one's just news. So, um, I urge you to listen to those where we talked about the seeming CRISPR um, and hopefully this was uh, as as basic as I could do it so that you can understand uh, what is coming, uh, what is coming. And uh, so that way, because with knowledge, you're not scared, right? If you're armed with knowledge, you cannot fear something. Uh, if you have no knowledge, then you're walking blind and you know, that is a concern uh, for everyone. Knowledge is key. Knowledge is power. And uh, this is something that, you know, I mean, he, he told you about teleportation, right? It's 2014, right? He had the prototypes in 2014, right? And he doesn't just say things. He's not that type of person. Now, um, think about it. That was six years ago. Six months, look at the world change. Think about the changes that can happen within six years. So God bless everyone. I will see you guys tomorrow, same time, same place. Or if anything happens to drop, uh, make sure you subscribe uh, to the channels that I'm able to live stream at. And so that way you can see it. God bless. See you tomorrow. I don't want to I just want to start a flame in your heart.